VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Tuesday, June the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's go. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So here we are, the last full day of spring, the summer solstice. This happens sometime midday, island time tomorrow. Many people will be happy to see this particular spring in the rearview mirror. But anywho, there you go. Final check-in on the... 2023 FIBA Under-16 Women's America's Championships in Mexico. So Canada made it all the way to the final. Of course, we're talking about it notably because Sarah Reed from St. John's, Gonzaga High School basketball player, is on the team. Had a good run, but they dropped the decision in the gold medal game, 79-59 to the Americans. That's their fourth straight gold medal, seventh overall at the uh, Women's Championship, the America's Championships. And that's, I think, four, fourth consecutive silver medal for the Canadians. Anyway, they were in there for most of the game, but the second quarter, boom, 22-8, outscored by the Americans, and they drop it overall. Saw some incredible pitchers yesterday. So the Avalon Celtics had a 50-50, and for the team that sold the most 50-50 tickets, raised the most money, one of the prizes was a day where we had an opportunity to skate and have a meal with, and pitchers with, Alex and Abby Newhook. Of course, the divisions in the U9 Elite Tournament, pardon me, the U9 Select Tournament, were named the Abby and Alex Newhook Divisions, and so they gave her their time, which they've done repeatedly over the years, like many of the other athletes that are making waves on the big stage. So good on them. And for the players, you could see the excitement in their face. Some terrific photos floating around. Anyway, this one, one more on hockey before we move on. Connor Bedard, who's very, very likely the first overall pick in the upcoming NHL entry draft, which happens on the 28th of June, he's been named the inaugural winner of the WIHF Male Player of the Year. Remarkable stuff for a teenage junior hockey player. So IIHF is International Ice Hockey Federation. So he's got a couple of world championships at the juniors under his belt. He is a real once-in-a-generation type of talent, as people speak to. Now we'll see what kind of success he has as a uh, NHLer. But in the most recent CHL awards, he was player of the year, top prospect, top scorer, where he plays for the Regina Pats in the Western Hockey League. 17 years of age, 71 goals, 72 assists in 57 games. And International Ice Hockey Federation Male Player of the Year, 17 years old. Pretty cool. All right, so this is a call-in show. As you know, a couple of phone-related uh, issues on these dates, this date in history. Today, to on this date, I guess I'm supposed to say, in Hamilton, Ontario, Alexander Graham Bell installed the world's first commercial telephone service in 1877. Another interesting one, in 1963, the so-called or the infamous Red Telephone established between the White House and the Kremlin to link the two superpowers all about lessons learned and the standoff that was the Cuban Missile Crisis, 1963. All right. So it's the last week of school, and I'm sure all the teachers, administrators, or students are keeping their eye on the 1230 Thursday prize. And there's lots of things we can talk about in education. But one issue that I'm not so sure gets a whole lot of attention in this part of the country is the concept of learning loss. I mean, as a parent of a school-aged child, you'll be painfully familiar with the fits and starts of schools are open and then they're closed, and then there's the hybrid issue of learning in some days in the classroom, some days at home. We've really changed the way we assess students, their understanding of the curriculum in one grade or another. 
I'm not going to say that, you know, back in the day when I was in school, you know, rote memory of your times tables and then public exams and all the rest. But if I look at newspapers in particular in different parts of the country, they seem to have taken a different approach about l understanding the learning loss issue that their students have faced in the K-12 system. Not so sure we've done the same thing here. So I hear from parents all the time that are worried about this concept, and it's not only moving from grade 12 into university and the lack of public exams, not to say that standardized testing is the only way to assess a student, but if we have the thought of inflated marks, which many provinces are reporting and the parents of those provinces are speaking to, and or the completely out of practice and not necessarily prepared for post-secondary, which some post-secondary institutions are absolutely talking about around the country, even if it's simply the understanding and how you study, prepare for, and execute an exam. Because no matter what you think about the assessments in the K-12 system, at some point in post-secondary, the tune does change. And you have to be ready and willing to change with it. Because they are not standing by, holding your hand, not to say they're oblivious to one individual and their ability to be successful in post-secondary, but it's vastly different from the K-12 system. So those are the questions that I would have. Is what sort of evaluation have we done? And what have we done about it? In some provinces, when they had a better understanding of learning loss, they actually adjusted the curriculum for each grade to talk about what curriculum was actually delivered at a pace that was better understood pre-pandemic. So they understood the issue. They did something about it. I'm not so sure that we've done the same thing. So there's a lot that's left to be learned from the last few years and even just this year. Whether it be about the critical shortage of permanent teachers, full-time teachers, or substitute teachers, we've learned a lot of hard lessons regarding schools, uh, school safety. We've also had the Carter Churchill decision, which is getting international attention. Not great. But that would be questions for the minister. Unfortunately for all of us, there's a very new education minister, and so consequently, there is a realistic opportunity for new ministers to get up to speed, but we don't necessarily have time on our side in preparation for what's right around the corner is next September back in the school. So parent of school-aged children, if you want to take on what you see on that front, let's do it. The inflated marks is having complications for a variety of post-secondary schools and different disciplines because let's just look, for instance, at nursing. Again, it's helpful, to, I think, to look around the country to see what other provinces are facing, some of the solutions they're coming up with. And yes, in this province, we have expanded seats in the registered nursing schools, some 25 additional seats. That's a good thing. But at the exact same time, if there's concern around inflated graves, grades and a lack of similar or standardized testing around the country, then you see the competition and the landscape of competition becoming quite unlevel. So it's not just about your preparation to go from grade 6 to 7, or from 9 to 10, or for that matter from 3 to 4. It does come with down the road institutions of higher learning and complications therein. So I really don't know what we've done to fully evaluate in a comprehensive fashion and deal with it pragmatically. You know, people talk about, well, I'm just getting my son or daughter is just pushed ahead, maybe doesn't have the reading comprehension skills, maybe is still struggling with mathematics, and it's hard to catch up. And you can't blame the teachers at the next grade level because it's hard for them to look back for two or three students out of 25 as opposed to just hope that the teacher and the curriculum in the year prior had all 25 prepared in some sort of level footing to be able to advance and to move on with the curriculum. But we know it's not happening. 
So that would be one of my major concerns inside of schools and if you want to take it on and anything else in school, let's go. And in the nursing program, say for instance, you know, I can only hope that while Memorial University, while the university is looking for their next president, of course, and there's been a tumultuous year at Mon, you wonder just how committed the next president and leadership group will be about creating a law school. When we see, whether it be with respiratory therapists, radiation therapists, or LPNs, nurse practitioners, registered nurses, doctors, we don't have an issue or a shortage of lawyers. Even members of the legal community are sort of not really understanding how and why Munn wants to proceed on that front. I know the med school has its own standalone budget from the rest of the university, but doesn't it make sense that we identify areas that we have real problems filling the gaps, backfilling positions, whether they be nurses moving on to the travel agency, which is a mind-boggling issue, and or retirees? Because this problem is not overnight. This is not just because of the pandemic. This has been a, an issue that's been created over the last decade plus. So doesn't it make sense to you that if we have an issue regarding healthcare worker shortages, that we give it some keen focus? And I know universities will offer a plethora of courses for curiosity learning, lifelong learning, and that's absolutely what universities are all about. But they also have to be attentive and reactive, maybe get out in front of it, about the real legitimate shortages, whether it be in the economy, regarding the tech sector, whether it be in healthcare. So let's just hope they just turn her back on the law school and put some more focus, attention, and money, expand the seats where we really need people. And yes, not just in healthcare, tech or otherwise, but that one's on my mind. You want to take it on? Let's go. I'll just go down the Bureau Peninsula. I've heard from Mar Marystown Mayor Brian Keating. You know, their economy is struggling. There's lots of issues in various parts of more rural and remote Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, and yes, right here in the urban setting that is Northeast Avalon. But one issue they're pointing to is some promises that were made about expanding the former Marystown shipyard. And isn't this just something else? That given where we are geographically, we're not some sort of at least player in the shipbuilding world? Anyway, turning the former Marystown shipyard into an aquaculture service and supply hub, Marabase. So Paul Antolini's group, which has now expanded to uh, join forces with the Miakopec First Nation, they're no further ahead. It's only one full-time employee. They're basically storing feed for the salmon farms. They'll point to the obvious ones that people talk about all the time. Supply chain issues, inflation, maybe some of the sluggish growth that in the aquaculture industry itself. So Mayor Keating, if you're interested, and Mr. Antle as well, if you'd like to come on and talk about where we are. Mr. Antle says he's still fully committed, but Mayor Keating, not necessarily impressed with those comments. Promises are one thing, action is quite another. So things like that, and we have not talked about aquaculture in a long time here. It's just curious how the federal government talks about and treats the aquaculture industry differently on the east coast of the country versus the west coast of the country. And yes, for communities, let's just pick one out randomly. Harbor Breton. If it wasn't for aquaculture, their economy would be in partial ruins. So we can take that on, and there's a lot to some of these potential economic upswings, whether it be in the fishery or aquaculture, and or, yes, the wind to hydrogen to ammonia, which I think we're going to hear, like from Minister Andrew Parsons yesterday, in the next few weeks. Maybe July announcements, but they're coming very quickly. Not surprised, and this has been an annual event. Uh, the most repeated question I've been asked, certainly via email, is do I know anything about the dates for this year's recreational food fishery? And I don't. But a little birdie told me we can anticipate an announcement this week. Okay. 
So we know in years past that this one just is enough to drive you. It was last year on the 22nd of June. We were told it would open on the 2nd of July. 39 days, just like the year before. So I wish I had answers for you and could give you a confirmation about early July, but I'm anticipating that's coming very quickly. And stick it with the water for a second. I think the case is that the processors are buying snow crab from all different fleets. And yes, I do think there's going to be some move and a lot of pressure on Minister Loveless, who is now replacing Derek Bragg as Minister of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture, about the potential for harvesters to take a certain percentage, an additional percentage of their catch, and whatever people want to call it, pot to play. So they can evaluate what kind of money they can get for it in the market. And the market in this case would be locals, local restaurants, local businesses. Because the, we're not going to see any sort of resolution to this particular emotional contentious standoff regarding the price setting panel and their selection of 220 a pound. So Minister Loveless, once again, before we know it, we're going to be talking about snow crab. And now the commitment by the Premier has also come with a caveat that all sides have to agree to whatever a new structure might be and when it's coming. But isn't it high time that some of these things are, you know, a little bit too annual to be continuously putting up with very similar spats for different seasons, for different species? So we'll see what happens right there. And many of you will indeed be following what is a completely scary story regarding the missing submersible that was headed for the Titanic. Okay, so we've seen a new eco-adventure that includes whopping big price tags but come with huge risks. Whether it be civilians going to space and now going down some 3,800 meters below the surface to view the wreck of the Titanic. So the submersible, they've lost contact with the ship at the surface. It's really quite scary. You know, it cost them $250,000 to be one of the passengers. There's a crew of five on board this submersible. I don't know what the future holds. They have enough air for some 96 hours or four days. And here we are, second day of the missing. The U.S. Coast Guard with aerial search and doing what they can with sonar buoys and what have you to locate this missing vessel. But it is sort of disheartening to know that so many of the news stories, especially online, on social media, which is not necessarily the real world, point the finger at millionaires and billionaires and, you know, too bad about them. There's someone's husbands and sons and daughters, or I don't know if there's any women on it, but these are real people, so they took a, a huge risk, and we'll see what becomes of this search. But apparently there's several different modes where the submersible can make its way back to the surface, inflatable ballast bags and, you know, deploying the legs of the submarine to remove some weight, but it's an unbelievable story, and we'll see what the search brings to bear but we do know that the North Atlantic, well, the ocean is absolutely merciless. So 3,800 meters below, you couldn't pay me the $250,000 to go. You know, th just think about how many people in this province don't even have sea legs. And it is a very dangerous life and risky life to be working in marine industries. So whether it be we talk about uh, fishing vessel safety and maybe the requirements have EPIRBs and this particular Titanic issue, which we're happy to talk about today, not that I know a whole lot about it, other than the fact that there's five people in distinct jeopardy of never being seen or heard from again. Anyway, a uh, quickie on food. So we've had some good stories about advancements in greenhouse technology. We spoke with the Western Environment Center last week about the new greenhouse in the Cornerbrook area. And, you know, I'm, t I'm told by many municipal leaders quietly that there's not much they can do with expansion for backyard farming and homesteading and what have you. 
But then you juxtapose that with O'Brien's firm. It's been an active working firm for over 200 years. They've now moved on to some learning center, what have you, but it's still an active working firm. And so when you're told in certain parts of the province you can't do this and you can't do that based on pre-Confederation documents that were basically copy-pasting into municipal bylaws, here's that firm, overlooks the Avalon Mall in the northeastern portion of the city of St. John's, and yet someone wants to convince me that we can't do better, do more, to grow fo- food closer to where people live, cost and whatever else might be associated with this food insecurity issue. So there's lots to take on. Oh, very quickly. So the immediacy of concerns, whether it be in Happy Valley Goose Bay and the transient population and the problems that they're having and asking for additional policing, because short-term solutions are what they are. And, of course, what doesn't necessarily come behind that is any firm resolution from municipal governments and or the province to deal with how and why so many people are finding themselves living on the trails and what that means for public safety. But here in the city of St. John's, in a vote of 7-2, St. John's City Council approved an 8-foot-high fence around the George Street performance stage. You know, the visual of someone living, sleeping on the stage, of course, is of a concern. And I don't really know. Some people think this is just completely a gross decision. How do you weigh the short-term possible solutions with an actual concerted effort to once again understand who these people are and what we need to do to put a roof over their head. Housing is going to be the solution to a lot of stuff because whether or not you think the fence is a good idea, all that really happens here is that whoever or however many people were choosing to sleep on that stage or were sleeping on that stage, all we've really done is put them to sleep somewhere else. Nothing has been settled or solved. We've taken one issue in one portion on one street in one city with a fence and think that somehow that has made things better for that particular area, that particular stage, that particular street, and that particular person. All they're going to do is put their head down somewhere else outdoors. So you might think the short-term solution is what it is for the city of St. John's, but dispossessing people from one area or another to get them out of eye shot of a tourist or a patron of the downtown core really doesn't advance the conversation. Not even one baby step. You want to take it on? Let's go. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you on the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Big thanks to informed listeners. I spent yesterday afternoon and evening virtually off the grid trying to complete another project. So apparently the food fishery dates were announced. Didn't see it, so I appreciate you bringing it to my attention. Okay. The recreational food fishery will take place every Saturday, Sunday, Monday from the 1st of July up to and including the 4th of September and then the fall fishery September 23 to October 21. So pretty much same stuff as years past. And here we go again with some lack of clarification. As in previous years, individuals are allowed a daily bag limit of five ground fish per day. A maximum boat limit of 15 fish applies when three or more people are fishing. Not necessarily what they said via email last year. But anyway, thanks for that, ladies and gentlemen, who sent me the information. Let's begin this morning on line number four and say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay East, Bell Island. He's the interim leader of the party. That's David Brazel. David, you're on the air. Thank you for this uh, opportunity to get on and chat about a few things uh, relevant to the people of this province. But first, I want to, you know, thoughts and prayers going out to, uh, you know, the situation with the submersible off our coast here and to the individuals there and the family and those who are heading up the rescue effort. Hopefully we get a positive outcome here because we know how dramatic that must be on the families and the individuals involved here. Yeah, it's... 
it's a scary story. I'm always a little bit dismayed, but I suppose some of this just comes with the keyboard warrior that is part of our lives these days. People taunting the millionaires and billionaires for being in that circumstance in the first place. Look, whoever they are and talking about the type of risks they're willing to take and what that means for search and rescue capacity and all that, okay, that's fine. We can take that stuff on. But the fact of the matter is five people are missing. And unless something fortuitous happens in the next day or two, maybe gone forever. So, you know, we want to take on the other side of the coin at some point. Let's do it when we see what the outcome is. I agree 100%. This is about the individuals and getting them back safe and sound and uh, keeping their families in good place. I wanted to talk about, and uh, I didn't get a chance yesterday, I was tied up with some things, uh, around the Atlantic Loop. And I know you had some discussions around some of the uh, concerns or some of the, I guess, misnomers about information not being shared. And that's uh, the same concerns that I have here. 100% supportive of the Atlantic Loop concept uh, and the benefits not only for Newfoundland Labrador, but for our Atlantic counterparts from a green energy uh, provider and, and doing its part particularly for sister provinces like Nova Scotia, New Brunswick and to a certain degree uh, Prince Edward Island. But when we start hearing information about what's happening on a multi-billion dollar project from the Premier of another province or bureaucrats out of Ottawa and no mention of Newfoundland Labrador and the stake we have or the input or the investment that may be made or the benefits because at the end of the day this asset is in the boundaries of Newfoundland Labrador it's primarily owned by Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Why would we not be first front center at the negotiations and more particularly sharing information with our citizens about what impact this may have positively or some challenges it may have as part of the process? So, you know, I've, I've been asking the Premier and the Minister for the last uh, year uh, to be more transparent and open. Get the fact that negotiations sometimes, the details uh, can't always be shared because there's some sensitivities. But at the end of the day here, when Tim Houston, who, you know, and rightfully so, is defending his province and making sure that the best deal is going to be set for his province, keeping in mind, and, you know, I have to keep reiterating, we own this asset. And the asset here, beneficiaries should be Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. While we share uh, the ability to, you know, do clean uh, green energy for the rest of the uh, provinces and do our part for the environment, it's got to be a negotiated contract that benefits Newfoundlanders and Labradorians also. You know, $4.5 billion is, you know, touted to be two-thirds of the project cost. Where's the other third of the contract, uh, contract cost coming from? Are we on the hook for certain things? These are discussions that need to happen, and we need to be reassured that they are happening with Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, particularly uh, at the table. What I'm hearing now, this is not an Atlantic loop. It's a maritime loop with Quebec uh, uh, holding a lot of the cards here. Could be. So so the problem is we don't really necessarily know exactly what this is, what its goal is, whether it be just in Nova Scotia to take them off coal-fired generation, which they still have a real reliance on. That's the difference between Premier Houston and our government is that he needs, right? So there's a distinctly different starting point for what the province, uh, the, the pressure or the levers they have to pull because they need this. Not so much the same can be said for the other provinces unless it doesn't stop in Nova Scotia or New Brunswick and finds new markets in the northeastern United States. But my thought would be, if we don't generate any further power beyond what's already the capacity in place, Muscraft Falls notably, uh, the Upper Churchill and what have you, is we don't even have any power. So what would be our role unless we're talking about offshore wind farm that contributes to it, if we're talking about Gull Island, if we're talking about uh, hydrogen, that some of those projects were absolutely going to go ahead? Because from where I sit, I don't even understand what we have to offer. Because at Muscrat, 
you know, unless Hollywood goes by the wayside, or pardon me, if it remains in place like it looks like it will be, and adding an eighth generating unit of beta spare with the UARB in Nova Scotia, first order of refusal, after we give them some 20, 23% of the power right up with our contractual obligations, what power do we actually have to contribute to this project? You're exactly right. And, and you know, CEO Jennifer uh, uh, Williams uh, from, uh, from Newfoundland Hydro said the same thing, that we're going to have a demand in Newfoundland Labrador. But that's why the sensitivity here of the negotiations or the information that should be shared is are there negotiations around what's happening with uh, more power in Upper Churchill? Is uh, Gull Island going to be a project that's going to be uh, looked at and developed over the, the uh, life of the expectancy over the next decade or so? So there's a lot of unknowns here. And the unfortunate thing is we're hearing pieces of the information from other provinces, not knowing does it fit well with what we're doing here, does it mean that there is potential here to develop other hydroelectric power, or like you said, are we going to go get heavier into uh, uh, wind development here as a hydroelectric uh, generator there so that we can also offset what's needed in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick as part of those processes. So the continued thing is here, why is the Premier not at least bringing people up to speed? He doesn't have to show all of his cards, and I get Tim Houston obviously is not sharing everything of what's being negotiated, nor the federal government at this point. But we're not getting any information here, and that's alarming to the people of this province. I mean, too often uh, we've seen what hasn't happened in the past, or after the fact uh, we have the deal with uh, fallout that is not positive for our province here. So just asking the Premier, we're not beating him up, we're not saying we're against anything, be a little bit more open and transparent. Tell us where you are when it comes to the negotiations. Tell us what's being offered, and tell us what the long-term plans are for Newfoundland, Labrador, hydroelectric power, or any other type of uh, generated power for this province that the people themselves are the asset owners. We have a population that is justifiably gun-shy talking about mega-projects. You know, it's something new that we all really can't firmly wrap our minds around when we talk about wind, hydrogen, to ammonia, some of the opportunities that may present, because we are not the, the intended customer, even though somewhere down the line we might be. But regarding hydro and development, I really don't know what the appetite would be. Now, if it comes with a power purchase agreement for 25 years worth of 2,000 megawatts in the state of New Jersey, New York, and Maine, and Vermont, and Connecticut, or wherever, then people would be like, okay, show me how it works, and tell me how I'm not on the hook, you know, for overruns or otherwise, because until that can be firmly articulated, I really don't know what the appetite is for any of these types of projects. You're exactly right, and that's why at least if information is put out in a, in a positive manner in, in advance of any development or any uh, heavy discussions, uh, then people will will be less weary and a little bit more informed. What we're hearing here in Newfoundland Labrador, we have to be weary of what's happening because the only information we're getting is from other provinces who, and rightfully so, have a vested interest to protect their own citizens and taxpayers, and I get that. We should be front and center protecting our taxpayers and our investment here and the assets we have to see if it can be developed to uh, you know, make sure that the benefactors are the people of this province and that the employment and the long-term benefits would be a positive for Newfoundland and Labrador. We're we're not hearing that, so it's a simple request to the Premier and his administration, be a little bit more open and transparent, or tell us where you are in the negotiations. Reassure us that you're at the table and explain what's being negotiated to a certain degree and who's there so we know it's in good hands, so that we know uh, we don't go down the road again where we start losing uh, control over our assets, which we have in the past. We've got an opportunity with the 2041 negotiations, if they're done properly, uh, 
uh, to get back our assets and see uh, the economic benefits of what should have been there for years. And if we can develop uh, the use of Muskrat Falls and additional energy proposals and offshore hydronet and wind power, then we could be in a good place. But to do that, people got to know exactly uh, what's happening. Because you're right, the appetite here for a mega project uh, right now isn't a positive thing unless they know it's in good hands, it's been negotiated, uh, transparency and openness, and we will be the beneficiaries of any asset at the end of the day. I'd be more interested in from today to 2041 and 41 thereafter than the Atlantic Loop with all the actual unknowns. I don't dispute the fact we need to know a little bit more about what's going on. We actually struck a committee to talk about the implications of 2041, which we have not heard from. Uh, so uh, last one before I let you go. So the nomination process closed for the leadership of the party. You've been an interim leader since the... Uh, March of 2021. So, of course, people know it is Eugene Manning, Lloyd Parrott, and Tony Wakem. Are you endorsing one or the other? Well, you know, I'm looking at what their policies are going to be. I would hope, like any other card-carrying member of the PC party, I will be marking an X for uh, the uh, potential candidate that I think would be the best person to take us into uh, the next general election and lead the party in the right direction and, and right the uh, ship in Newfoundland Labrador. So as I look at what the, each of the candidates stand for, uh, you know, I'll get an opportunity to exercise my democratic right and mark an X for the individual I think is best to, to suit this province and this party. So when that comes to the, uh, the choice you're going to make to where you strike your X, are you going to publicly endorse someone? Well, I'll look at, uh, you know, what role I play in, in you know, exercising my democratic right as a member of the party uh, in the future. We'll see where that takes me. Depends, you know, the signing up and the voting doesn't happen until uh, uh, October. So I've got lots of time to see who's uh, in the running here and who I think is the best candidate. And I'll, I'll make a decision later on. Uh, this fall. Appreciate the time, David. Thank you. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. David Brazel is the PC member for Conception Bay East Bell Island, the interim leader until October, Will the PCs will indeed select their new permanent leader. Okay, let's take a break. We know there are sectors of the economy having a hard time trying to find staff. One such area is hospitality, tourism. Where can we find some workers for that sector? We're going to find out what the contribution might be of newcomers to the province when we speak with the Director of Employment and Ser- Employment Services at the ANC. That's Jim Murphy. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Well, asked in a very aggressive tone why I willfully didn't mention this morning that the RCMP are investigating the federal liberal government with their handling of the criminal charges against the engineering firm, SNC-Lavalin. Well, I didn't because it's not actually a thing. So the RCMP just uh, spoke to it this morning saying that there is no such investigation. It was published far and wide yesterday. And interestingly enough, there was four federal by-elections yesterday. The Liberals took two, the Conservatives took two. So... It was extraordinary that that became part of the conversation yesterday afternoon, and the RCMP had to speak about it today to set the record straight that there is actually no investigation of the like, no probe on that front, so that's why I didn't speak to it. All right, let's go to line number six and say good morning to the Director of Employment... Let me start that again. The Director of Employment Services at the Association for New Canadians, that's Jim Murphy. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thank you. How about you? Good, good. Enjoying the weather. <laughs> yes, me too. Okay, so, you know, when new arrivals come, regardless if they come from the Ukraine or otherwise, there's a couple of things they need. A place to live and a job. You know, trying to dovetail what skills they bring to the table, and we can also talk about, you know, transferring credentials and accreditations to work at something they actually can do, like being a pharmacist was one of the stories I heard recently, is what's the role that you're, you and your organization are playing with the hospitality industry? 
Uh, I guess particular, Patty, to the hospitality industry, it's kind of like every other industry. So a lot of the work that we do is around job matching and recognizing some of the shortages in some of the sectors. And certainly hospitality is no stranger to shortages in terms of uh, uh, its vacancy rates. Uh, Actually, I think Canadian statistics right now, back in April, May, were in the vicinity of 48% in terms of vacancy rates. So, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador has the same kinds of challenges. And, you know, some of these positions are definitely hard to fill. A lot of them are seasonal. But, um, you know, we're we're here to help. And and, and many of the newcomer clients that we work with are are definitely interested in getting involved in this sector. Uh, We've had calls from as far away, for example, as Rocky Harbor, uh, Bonavista. So we, we've been working with employers from, you know, across the province, for that matter, uh, uh, even, you know, in the Corner Brook area with regards to, uh, you know, shortages in that sector. So to that, we're, we're really uh, essentially a job matching service, you know. We, we recognize the vacancies. We ask employers to reach out to us. And then we kind of take it from there uh, with regards to moving our clients uh, through the process of, of finding, uh, you know, solid employment. So, so to that, uh, yeah, lots of openings in those sectors, but we're really working hard with employers to fill those vacancies. Okay. In the job matching process, this would seem like a very fundamental question, but is it the case that ANC actually has on file with each individual what their work, what their work uh, profession might have been in the past, the credentials they have, the schooling they have, the training they have, language proficiency, and those types of things, in an effort to job match versus just saying, this newcomer, do you want to work? How about here? Absolutely. Uh, we bet every single one of our clients, uh, Patty, we bring them actually through a full uh, needs assessment process and we, they work with our career practitioners to do exactly what you just, uh, what you just enunciated, uh, which is that uh, we do a full needs assessment. We ask them about their educational backgrounds, uh, their previous experiences and how then we can apply that to the Newfoundland and Labrador uh, job market. When you look at things like hospitality, not every job in tourism is seasonal, but a lot of them would be. Is there any hesitancy once newcomers are given that detail that it doesn't seem like the attractive option they want, or are they just simply willing and wanting to go to work? I think a couple of schools of thought, I guess, on that one. It's that for some, it may be a first job. So, you know, any opportunity to go to work is good Canadian experience for them. And so, you know, we look at we look at that and we we couch it as a a great career opportunity, uh, no matter how long the job may may last. Uh, what we encourage, of course, is that, you know, we look for full-time employment, but seasonal employment in Newfoundland and Labrador is a reality. And so what we encourage them to do is, you know, they take in seasonal employment, and then after that's done, they'll actually come back to us, and we, we find them other work uh, to fill in, you know, the winter months or whatever the case may be. I guess really no different than, we'll say, the construction industry, which is very seasonal in nature as well. So, uh, And the other thing everybody should realize is that, Permanent residents, uh, that's people who are living here in Canada, um, you know, uh, from other countries, also have the ability to access our, our EI systems. So, you know, if there are a couple of down months, then they have the they have the, the right as well to be able to access those those supports. Another seasonal industry, although there's technology that makes agriculture and farming a year-round operation if we talk about hydroponics, I'm just curious, especially from Ukraine, which people refer to as the breadbasket of Europe, how many agricultural background newcomers do we have, and are they actively looking for opportunities in that sector, whether it be to start their own business and or to complement other farms that are woefully short-staffed all the time? 
that's a great question. And so to that, we recognize uh, we recognize the talents that that uh, uh, people from other countries are bringing to the province. And and you're right in that many Ukrainians have strong agricultural program, uh, backgrounds. We're really happy to be able to say that many of them have found work on some of the local farms here. But to that, we also have brought them through some short-term training uh, through an introduction to agriculture and Newfoundland and Labrador program. And so with that, we've had some success with regards to labor market attachment because we were able to bring in some of the local uh, farmers and some of the local local agricultural uh, um, businesses to, to do guest speaking. And we, the program is actually directed by uh, individuals from the agriculture industry and so we're creating networks for them as well so there is some job market uh, attachment that has occurred as a result of that so yes your question there are many who come uh you know to the to the province and to the country with this background and so we've been pretty successful with with connecting them to decent jobs uh albeit uh you know uh in, in and around st john's it's a little more difficult to connect to the agricultural sector uh, but some areas certainly have taken advantage of some of the talent that have come to the area. I just want to pick on uh, pick up on the fact you mentioned permanent residents. I don't know if your organization works to this end, but it's curious. They can avail of VI benefits that you mentioned, healthcare services, what have you, but can't play an active role in the democratic process. Can't run for office. Can't vote in the in the elections. Is that something you work towards? Because to be fully ingrained in Canadian life, it comes with that bit of civic duty, or some people might even call it civic responsibility. It kind of lets them feel like they're on the outside looking in. Can do almost everything else, but can't be involved on that front. Do you work on that file? So uh, we're certainly advocates for that, Patty. I mean, we, we, we like to, we like, we're always advocates for our clients and for, for our newcomer clients. Uh, but to that, uh, the, the process of citizenship, I guess, is one that's been around for quite some time. Perhaps there are opportunities to review it. Uh, and, and we hear you loudly and clearly. We'd certainly like to ha- for them to have a greater say in, in the political world. Uh, but, you know, through that, it does also take them some time to settle, to understand the, the political systems in, in the country. Uh, so the, the, the pathway to citizenship is about a three-year pathway. And so, you know, it's not that permanent residents will never, ever get to vote, but it, it is about a three-year pathway. So 100% with regards to advocacy for them to to be able to vote sooner. But, uh, you know, I guess right now, I guess policy is policy, and uh, maybe there will be changes down the road. Last one, back to your Ballywick inside of uh, Employment Services. One issue that we know, and we've heard from a doctor from Ukraine, a pharmacist from Ukraine, and it's not just Ukrainians. I don't know why everyone's so quick to go to that country of origin, but we have a problem here. You know, the ability to translate or transfer your credentials and your learning, your degrees or certification to this country to be able to work in your past field is really a problem. People will go to the obvious story as well. I've got a physicist driving my Uber, those types of productive thinking, but it is a problem. So I would imagine many people you represent are exactly in that predicament. The government talks about trying to fast track it in the world of healthcare, but there are disciplines that are held by newcomers that come in all the time to the country here and right from coast to coast to coast that simply have to wait forever in a day or go through a costly experience to get to do what they're trained to do. What's on the go? So I guess with regards to that, um, you know, there's, there, are, there are credentialing processes uh, involved in, I guess, in all sectors, uh, you know, even the trade sectors, as we know, uh, you know, recognize that even Red Seal trades, if you're from another country, it's not an easy pathway. And so uh, I guess, you know, we, we are victims of our own regulations uh, and regulatory bodies in some respects. But, uh, you know, I guess 
to that, we want to ensure that you know newcomers that do come to the country do actually have the credential to be able to perform the tasks. Uh, to that, there are a lot of challenges in this sector, uh, Patty. Uh, it can take a long, long time for somebody, for example, to be recognized as a medical physician in the in the country, much less the province. So, uh, you know, there are definitely challenges there. But I mean, to that, there are, there are processes that we follow, and we do actually help help folks to to get into these sectors. And what we also do as well is recognizing, for example, that somebody's in the medical field, then we'll look at the transferable skills that they have as well. So that, so that at least they are working in the field to some degree and not working outside of the field. So, for example, maybe somebody who was in pharmacy, as you mentioned earlier, uh, we may have them working as pharmaceutical assistants, for example, in some of the pharmacies. So at least they're still in touch with the profession. And then uh, with our assistants, we'll also help them to, to move forward and you know, try to stay connected to that industry, maybe through some extra schooling to fill the gaps in their education uh, with regards to the regulations in Canada. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest for a minute that we uh, fast track for the sake of just to fill gaps for political uh, photo opportunities, but there does seem to be a lag in the cost that is not is detrimental to them and I think detrimental to the country that they're arriving in. Uh, very quickly before we go, do you have a job fair upcoming? Dave Williams just put in my ear. Uh, no, there's no job fairs upcoming. Our next job fair will probably be slated for sometime the fall. Now, as we move into the fall season, uh, we're looking at uh, running something uh, probably in the September month. Uh, you know, our fairs have had good success in the past, but uh, the most success we actually have is through employer outreach. Uh, and we, we very, very carefully scrutinize and watch uh, job vacancies here in the province reach to employers when we see these opportunities and so i guess in terms of successes job fairs are fantastic uh, it's a great opportunity for networking but i have to tell you that the best successes that we do have is definitely through our job matching programs we invite any employers as well to uh, register through uh, government of newfoundland labrador uh, on their on the ipgs uh, website uh, that would be uh, uh, employment or, or sorry uh, immigration population growth and uh, skills uh, and so by doing that, then they can actually access, you know, wage subsidies that may be available uh, to newcomers as well as to any, you know, Newfoundlanders, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. What are your clients saying about a couple of issues that are prevalent across the country? Access to health care, and I think on top of that list would be also be housing. Because we know for temporary foreign workers, companies may indeed be forced to buy something to house their workers for whatever amount of time they'll be in the country. If you're coming to stay full-time, if you can't find a place to live, that would make a big uh, dent in your want to set up shop here and put down your roots in the province for the long term. So is it getting any better? What is your role in that front? Because the pressures are real. So, so to that, we have a full division that handles housing for us within the Association for New Canadians. And I have to say they do a really good job with, uh, with searching for uh, places for individuals to, to, to uh, live. And they work closely with Newfoundland Labrador Housing. And they work closely with all of the, you know, any landlords that are, that are interested in working with us. And so we've had really good success. I guess we've got good traction in that area. And we've had, you know, long-term success. I mean, we all recognize that there are housing shortages everywhere. But to that as well, what we see a lot of, Patty, and it's really appreciated that employers uh, in some of the rural areas of the province actually step up and provide housing when they're looking for workers to come to their areas. And that, that is a, really, a real bonus. And so if we're able to be able to do that as part of an employment package, then that, that really speaks loudly to us being able to retain such a talented population in the province. Appreciate the time this morning, Jim. Thank you.
No worries. Talk to you soon. You too. Bye-bye. It's Jim Murphy. Bye-bye. He's Director of Employment Services at the Association for New Canadians. Let's take a break. When we come back, Reg is there to talk about the missing submersible on its way 3,800 meters below the surface to view the Titanic. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Reg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you, my buddy? Very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, pretty good, Patty. Good. Patty, uh, now listen, uh, I'm not a scientist by no means. I know nothing about underwater, very little. But I'm going to tell you, I don't know, Patty, I had a, I had a dory years ago, uh, longer than 21 feet. I mean, I don't know, like I said, technology now, I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, beyond beyond me, but I mean... A twenty-one foot submersible, whatever. Well, I think you said thirty-eight hundred meters or two miles. To me, that's somewhere around ten thousand feet underwater, with six people in that uh, particular, you know, unit. I mean, I, I don't know, Patty. I, I don't know if I'm out to lunch, like Bill Roll would say, or what, what's your opinion on it, Patty? I mean, before I get. Uh, say a few more words. Okay. Well, I'm not so sure it's as much about the size of the vessel versus the engineering and the technology and the adherence to safety, because I'm sure you can devise or make something that size that could be as safe as possible to go to that depth. So that's where I would come down on it. It does feel like very cramped quarters for five people to be going so far under the ocean with all the risks associated with it. But there was a a news story, I can't remember which uh, network in the United States broadcast it last fall, about this exact company and this exact uh, vessel. And they were kind of not very serious when it came to things regarding safety. And now we're finding out the hard way. So I'm not going to say it was put together with duct tape. I've never laid my eyes on it. But I did see the clip that's been widely circulated where they seem to scoff at some actual questions about safety for the uh, crew, safety for the passengers. But you couldn't pay me the $250,000 it cost the folks to go down. I wouldn't get in it for that. So it doesn't seem like something I would do, but I don't, I don't have enough background in engineering and or science to say that it's good or bad or indifferent to be in a vessel that size. I don't know. Oh, no, 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 that's what I say, you know, Patty. I'm not, I don't want to get off, you know, the wrong foot. Oh, no worries. To me, it's, to me, it's, uh, I don't know, I, uh, maybe it's uh, hard to use the word ludicrous, but I mean, I know there's lots of stuff uh, that we do in, in this life, you know, Patty, but uh, I, I don't know, my friend, but the thing is, you know, Patty, we've got to realize, too, regardless of the circumstance or what, I mean, we got five people, you know, uh, down 10,000 feet, uh, in the, you know, and God forbid, I mean, they're still human beings and we gotta, we gotta think, you know, a bit positive and hopefully that, you know, as we speak right now that they will find those people. I think there's a man and a son on, if I'm not, if I'm not, uh, That's what I mistaken. Yeah. but, uh, you know, Patty, it's very sad. And I know that I, I think I heard, uh, Linda Swain, interviewing the gentleman there, one gentleman there, and he spoke quite a bit about a pressure valve. I think he mentioned the pressure valve about three or four times uh, during their conversation or the interview, and that kind of struck me, you know, Patty, he said, like, everything else was good to go, but the pressure valve was very important, so I don't know if that plays uh, any part, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just... 
to me is not not a good news story. I did hear somebody say that there was somebody put a tent on an iceberg off Twillinggate there, but That's I think right. you know, I'd rather be out in a tent on the top of iceberg than 10,000 feet in uh, yes, uh, 21, uh, you know. Well, it's one thing to camp on the iceberg. It's another thing to try to scuttle up the side of the iceberg, which may indeed cause it to roll. So I, I can't predetermine the outcome here, but I did hear someone also say there's several different methods available for this uh, submersible to be able to make its way back to the surface, which is, I guess, why they're doing the aerial search as much as they're trying to get a uh, pinpoint about where it might be with some of the sonar buoys and stuff. But, you know, again, I guess we'll all just hope for a positive outcome here. And the issues regarding pressure valves and what have you, I don't know if it had a leak or it imploded or it's just simply been lost because radio communications at that depth are are sketchy at the very best of times. But you think about going to those depths versus going to space. The capsules that eventually make their way into orbit and the ones that are planning to land on the surface of the moon with this Artemis mission, they're pretty small too. right? And just think about it. One of the space shuttles blew up basically because of one, I'll call it a shingle, even though that's not the right word, that's there to protect from uh, coming back into the atmosphere and all the heat associated with it. So, you know, small things in these big technologically advanced adventures, it can be one little thing that causes a major problem. So I don't know is my end end commentary. I just hope that at some point today or in the very near future, they say we've found it and hopefully those on board are found safe and sound. I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, yes, that's for sure, Patty. Look, I say that that, that, I mean, anything can, you know, the smallest thing can go wrong. But sure. Anyway, and uh, I just wanted to touch bases and, then, and I'll make it quick. What, what's the problem with uh, DFO? I know you you briefed on it there this morning and uh, they did make an announcement, but yep. my God, Patty, they makes it sound like our little food fishery, like it's a big deal. I mean, come on, for God's sakes, get you, get with the program. You know, it makes it sound like more like the secret documents that Trump took out of the White House, for God's sakes. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> sick. <laughs> You know, just tell us when it's going to open, and never mind keeping, you know, keeping us on the stream. Well, we don't know for sure. We don't know how many you're allowed to get. I mean, we all know what we're allowed to do and what we're not. But anyway, anyway, Penny, my don, uh, son, uh, take it easy. Nice talking to you, and for sure, we'll chat again. Take care. Thanks, Reg. All the best. Yeah. Right, bye bye. Uh, and that vessel, as best I can tell, the Titan, is not actually approved by any marine or maritime authority, which seems a uh, incredible to me so i don't have the chops to speak to it in technical terms but when you hear from folks who either have been on it or in it and folks who know more about it it does seem that there's not a whole lot of optimism at this moment in time but to know that it's not approved by any single authority is really really quite something so we've reached out to a couple of folks that have been down to the wreck of titanic albeit in different vessels beyond this one and uh, again, boy, oh boy, that's something else. But leaning on that and that alone, that you would think that every single responsible body, Transport Canada and whatever the, uh, the same entity in the United States or anywhere else around the world would have had a clear test of the vessel at serious steps, all sorts of exercise to evaluate any of the potential problems, whether it be a pressure valve or otherwise before folks paying that kind of money, or forget the money, before folks get in it and head some, some 3,800 meters below the surface. Let's take a break. When we come back, Barry wants to talk about the wait times in the hospitals. We're talking about uh, housing in Nunatsiavut. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the housing coordinator with the Nazi vote government. That's Jeff Matthews. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, thanks. I'm just calling to basically chime in to your segment that you had earlier today about um, some of the homeless issues that are you know, popping up in St. John's and, you know, we, we do have a lot of issues as well in Goose Bay that are popping up, but um, I'd just like to call to give some insight regarding, you know, public perception of, you know, what's actually being done in the community. Um, I know it's a very tricky topic because a lot of the, the members of the community, you know, often see, you know, public intoxication. It could be um, you know, indecent acts, um, you know, the list goes on. Um, trust me when I say the our CMP in the community, you know, they're busy when, when they're out on these calls, they're dealing with our clients sometimes like on a daily basis. Like, but the big thing that I, I'd like to stress is also the humanity piece. Like, there's a big petition now within the community to go against uh, a homeless shelter. And I find that's very sad. Um, like right from the fundamentals of, you know, what every human needs, um, housing is first and foremost, like what you said earlier. So I just find it quite distressing that, you know, as society, we're progressing this way. Look, I, you know, two things. I don't know exactly what the root issue is regarding this proposed uh, housing facility and emergency shelter. You know, on one hand, they were saying that they need it so desperately, but I guess there's been a interruption or communication breakdown about some information required so they can move forward with things like regulatory issues and bylaws and those kinds of things. Okay, but then add to it. You know, there's a group of folks up there that are providing meals to folks who are the transient population, and there's some negativity flying at them as if they're enabling folks who are without a home or without something to eat. So it's all quite strange to me. Look, inside the world of short-term or the immediacy of needs, if there's a public safety concern, certainly we have to deal with it as quickly as possible for all the obvious reasons. But if it's not dovetailed with something more, like housing, then we're simply band-aiding stuff. And we do that far too often. Do we advance any public safety in the long term by simply an enhanced RCMP presence in Happy Valley Goose Bay or anywhere else? The short answer is absolutely no. So, yes, we have to do what we have to do today, but if that doesn't include what we have to do tomorrow, then we're just spinning our wheels. I agree. Um, It's a very complex issue. Um, You know, especially here in Labrador, like, there's a multitude of intergenerational trauma as well that's uh, mixed in with this. So a large part of our transient population and our homeless population are Aboriginals that are going through intergenerational trauma. So sometimes as well during that homeless connection piece is you got to bridge those gaps and also try to heal those wounds, connect them you know, to the right services to try to advance in life. So you know, if if those gaps are going to be skipped, then, you know, the issues aren't going to go away. When it comes to housing, this is a fundamental question, not a judgmental question. Regarding intergenerational trauma, 
That is a long, nuanced process that comes with a variety of different factors. But when we're talking about housing and the need of housing today, how do you factor that in? Because unless that particular issue, which can be dealt with quicker than some of the long-term complex issues, how does that concept factor into housing concerns? And I ask that as a, a, out of a position of ignorance. Yeah. Um, well, historically, if you look at Labrador, um, most Labradorians along the coast lived in overcrowding homes right from, well, the Spanish flu, if you look at it that way. Many families were forced to live together because, you know, a lot of families died. So, and then you, you look at the native reserves and there's a lack of housing as well along the coast in, you know, our, our native reserves as well. And there's still no, like, proper drinking water. Um I find it interesting because I, I read a book of a a trapper that went through Labrador over 100 years ago, and some of his concerns about the aboriginals of, of this place 100 years ago still echo the same today. So putting that into housing, like I think it's just we're we're not progressing like with society we're still fumbling around the same issues we're not addressing it so unless we address the core issues with trauma and addiction you know we we can't progress like of course we need more houses built but we also need root problems addressed as well and I don't know the answer to that question, which I freely admit uh, all the time here, because, you know, whether it be a firm grasp of the issue or what reconciliation actually means, because I think that, you know, if even if you look at the work done by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, everybody's story is different. The aftermath, what it's meant for their life is very similar. But for Canadians who are not in the Indigenous community, Reconciliation might mean something different to different people. And how we arrive at a place where, I don't know if there's ever going to be a time where it's settled or solved or fully addressed, but it's that lack of knowing exactly where to next. And people will be, some people will be 100% uh, objecting to any of it because they'll say things like, well, I had no hand in this. You know, that was my forefathers. That was generations ago. What do you want me to do about it? So Mm -hmm. I think that just leads to the people maybe, and I'll include myself in that group, is maybe not fully understanding exactly what it even means. Because Mm -hmm. if you're willing to reject it out of hand, then that's that. I mean, I don't know if there's bringing those people back into the conversation. But for Canadians to be willing to talk about it, I don't know if if we don't understand it. It's hard to have a conversation about it. If you even look at the long-term effects of intergenerational trauma, it can take up to seven generations to get through, say, the trauma from residential schooling. Jeff, I appreciate the time, specifically in your role as the housing coordinator. Anything else you want to tell us about, maybe things that are ongoing to address the concerns, or anything else you'd like to say before we say goodbye? Yeah, I'd like for more people to pick up some books and educate themselves. I appreciate your time this morning, Jeff. You too. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Jeff Matthews, housing coordinator with the Nazi government. Will I take whatever we have on one there, David? David's uh, dealing with one of the issues on the line there. Look, 
again, there's a lot of conversations that come with whether it be generational concerns or a based understanding of exactly what's happening for individuals and their communities or whatever the case may be, because I'll admit, once again, I'm not so sure I have a full grasp or grip on it either. Uh, let's take uh, Barry, who's been in and out this morning on line two. Barry, you're on the air. Yes, Patty, you're a first-time caller. Welcome to the show. I was to the hospital here in Placentia yesterday, and I had to wait three and a half hours. And they put me in and done the paperwork and stuff. And the lady asked me to go back out and sit down in the lobby. I waited another two and a half hours. I never, ever got in to see anyone good in a day. And I'm still hearing the rest of pain and everything ever since. And there was a lot of people that were ahead of me. And besides, there were people there from Cape Shore everywhere. Had taxis and that waiting for them. And they never got in. They had to end up leaving too. And it's not good enough to hold the system here in the center. And so this is emergency room or you're waiting at? Yes, yes. Uh, okay. emergency. I went to yesterday because uh, where I had strokes and stuff before. I thought I was having another one. And uh, never ever got to see anyone. I had to end up leaving yesterday after dinner to go home and get me a needle for uh, because I'm a diabetic. And Mrs. said, oh, once you leave, you might get back in. And I said, yeah. that's how okay. I expect that. And so what's the plan today? To go back? I don't know if I'm going to go back. Maybe they mightn't take me in over where I left Jiffy. There's so weird people. The health care has gone here in the center. Since the COVID, I don't know what's going on. They can't get to see anyone. And they'll be trained four weeks before you get to see anyone. That's not good enough. And in the world of emergency room care, I don't think it's a whole lot different anywhere. I mean, here I am in the capital city, and the emergency rooms here, Sinclair's and Health Sciences, they report being over capacity, sometimes double capacity, days on end. I mean, I know of someone personally, a friend of mine, who one day last week spent nine and a half hours waiting to be seen at an emergency room. I mean, that's an yeah, extraordinary that's, amount of time. Yeah, that's a bit much. It, yes, it is. It's a lot much. what's going on. And so everything, they're, they're blaming everything on the COVID. COVID, COVID, COVID's coming and gone. And it's still here in the area. Right? So have your symptoms waned at all? Do you feel any better today? I'm not 100%. I'm a bit better. But I didn't know that they go back or not. You know, I had to go over then you have to wait in just as long as you wait to just Probably so. Unfortunately so. Yeah. If it was me, and I, you do whatever you see fit for yourself, but I'd go and try again. If I need some emergency care, I'm going to have to go try and get some. Yeah. Now, I'll get to go to the doctor on Thursday morning. My friend, the doctor, maybe we go in see him. Well, if you can, that's probably uh, something that I would entertain as well. You're lucky enough to have a family doctor and appointment. So I wish you well. Hopefully you'll feel better enough to make it to Thursday. Yeah. There's a good many more besides me. No question. If they had appointments and that for a certain time, when we went to go up the wicked, no doctor was gone. He got home dinners. I hear the stories all the time. You're 100% right, Barry. You're not alone. No. Thank you, Patty. I wish you nothing but the best, and let me know how you make out on Thursday. All right, sir. Thank you very much for letting me on. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All the best.
All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Adam wants to talk about the conditions at long-term care. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Adam. You're on the air. Yes, Patty. This is the first time caller. Welcome back, to, or welcome to the show, pardon me. Uh, my buddy, uh, we got, uh, we're living in a place that, uh, in Carmelville, uh, Newfoundland. Uh, I don't think it's safe to be, anybody be living in it. Uh, is mole and spiders crawling all over everybody and is unfit for anybody to live in. I don't think anybody should know it, but I mean, this is terrible for anybody. I mean, this, people are sick and everything, right? So this is a provincially operated long-term care facility? Yes. In Carmenville? In Carmenville. And you are a resident? I'm a resident in the, in the place here, yeah. Okay. And there's a lot of people getting sick there. There's people that were there's two diabetics there. They're, we're treated like basically like animals. We're... It's not fit for any human being to stay into. So there's a bit of wind uh, rattling through your phone. So did I hear you say that it's moldy? Yes, it's moldy, it's spiders. Yeah, I had a couple of spiders crawling around my kitchen yesterday as well. Uh, so when it comes to identifying problems, whether it be mold or anything else, and you bring it to the attention of a supervisor or a manager, they basically tell you what? Says, oh, that's 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 okay. It's it's normal. Well, mold is dangerous, so it, it might be normal, but that doesn't mean it's acceptable. No, well, Patty, I tell you now, my buddy, we're we're living in nothing on his scum. It's it's brutal, really brutal. There's an ongoing review of long-term care and personal care homes. You know, whether it be about the percentage of patients that are taking antipsychotic drugs or they're living in restraints or the staffing issues and or physical issues like the facility, like the food and the mold or whatever else might be happening. So I don't know if this is being carefully attended to inside this review, but no matter who you are, where you are, there is a problem if you're living with mold. It can make you sick in a heartbeat. It's, it's particularly dangerous, different kinds of mold. Yes, it is, and I mean, it's not, it's not an ordinary, no, it's mold, asbestos, and when you go in the building, you smell it. Everybody is getting sick about it. I mean, I've been, I've been down in this place now for almost be a week now, Monday, and it's, it's not fit for living. There's seven of us there, and we're all getting sick. Well, I'm just pumping up, popping up something here on my screen to see if I can't uh, find out more. Okay, so is this Carmenville Manor? Yeah. Okay. Let me see if I can get a reaction from uh, anybody in charge out there. And maybe someone would like to take the opportunity to send along a couple of pictures that I can attach to an email. I don't know if you can do that or someone else can do it on your behalf so that we can get some direct reaction from them and from Eastern Health so that we can figure out exactly why it is the way it is. Uh, and, or from Central Health, I guess. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Adam? No, my buddy. And uh, it's, it's not, I mean, it's, it's terrible, Patty, buddy. I mean, it's. It's not fit for, I mean, for, you wouldn't even put a dumb animal in there. It's, it's terrible. Yeah, well, I hate to hear it. And, you know, this long-term care review is going to be pretty important. I will do some follow-up on this, Adam. If you or anyone else uh, in the home would like to send me a couple of pictures to help identify your concerns, and I'll attach those to the email, see if I can get some well, reaction. 
Uh, I'm coming in Gander now, I think, tomorrow. So can I come down to VOCM and show you the pictures and see what you guys think of this when I come in? Well, I'm not in Gander. I'm in St. John's. Well, I can go in Gander and show them the pictures in VOCM in Gander and then get them off my phone because I got it all on my phone, right? Okay, if you have them on your phone, can you just attach a couple of them to an email and send them directly to me? Uh, what's the email address? It's a simple one. It's uh, openline at vocm.com. Openline at vocm.com. That's okay. it. Yeah. All right, my buddy, I'll get them sent to you. Thanks, Adam. All right, buddy. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Okay, uh, let's go. Okay, here we go. So for a couple of hundred years, the O'Brien's farm has been an active working farm. Now they've added some features to their offerings, four new buildings, Thimble College, an outdoor classroom, and a newly opened interpretation center with the kitchen barn. Join us on line number two is the farm manager at O'Brien's. That's Aaron Rogers. Good morning, Aaron. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How you doing? Couldn't be better. How about you? Oh, things are good. Yeah, exciting times for you. I mean, just imagine so many farms have gone by the wayside. People haven't figured out a way to whether it be add to their offerings or to repurpose some of the land for different uh, different areas, whether it be education or otherwise. For folks who don't know what's changed at O'Brien's farm, walk us through maybe just a little bit of the process and now what the final outcome has been. Sure, yeah. So uh, this was a working farm until 2008. And, you know, like a lot of the farms, it really started to kind of take a downhill tilt for a number of different reasons, right? Like economic, kind of, um, you know, uh, things pushing in, uh, construction and and such. And um, in 2008, the last living member of the O'Brien family passed away and a foundation took it over. And their mission mandate was education, was to rebuild the farm for future farmers, um, and kind of a way to connect all the two. And so that's what we've been working on for the last uh, couple of years now, and we finally got it, so it's uh, open to the public. And some $1.2 million was raised to achieve this outcome. So what exactly are you now offering to the general public? Yeah, so we really kind of track along two ways. We have our learning center area, which is the Thimble uh, Cottage. Um, it's kind of the epicenter of it. Um, but we also have an interpretation center that can be used for different programs. We have uh, like a messy classroom, maker space, so we can do outside activities, gardening activities, and things like that. We have got our community garden that's also a teaching garden. And then we have a big kitchen barn where we uh, kind of combine all the food stuff we do with um, the you know events and stuff like that, right? Still making it fun. So that's kind of one big picture piece, uh, cultural heritage piece, the learning piece. The other side of what we do is we took uh, all the farmland that was already cleared and all, and we've turned it from kind of fields that were really needed a lot of remediation. The grass wasn't good at there anymore, any of that, and uh, broken it up into a, a agribusiness incubation program. So there's eight different new entrant Newfoundland farmers that are starting their farm businesses on our property here. And so these are newcomers to the uh, industry or the sector? That's right. Yep, yep. Uh, People, a lot of young people, a handful of um, uh, new Canadians, um, people, you know, that are looking at second careers. 
um, and that have a real interest in the agricultural business uh, in, you know, in different ways, mostly specialty crops, so like vegetables, flowers, um, different types of plants, uh, some unique kind of meat products and all. And, um, you know, kind of niche market, right? Not trying to compete with um, the, you know, McCain's on potato prices or anything like that, right? And um, and so they're they're looking to start their businesses, but it's just uh, it's pretty onerous to start a farm from scratch. So what we do is really try and give them a leg up on starting their their farm businesses. In, in what form? Because incubation comes in many forms. If I have a business at the Genesis Center at Memorial University and can lean on the folks at the Center for Entrepreneurial uh, Studies or Entrepreneurial Advancement, I can't remember exactly what it's called. So what does your incubator look like? Mentors on tap or is it simply trying to navigate the system for getting a, a business off the ground or simply the land? So tell me what happens if I'm, I have a business proposal, I get to use your facility. What does the incubator mean to me? Yeah, so so it's a little bit of all of those. So one thing that I really try and, and we've tried to do here as a foundation is make sure that we're a, a learning center and not a teaching center, right? So we don't want to prescribe this is how you do it. We want people to learn on their own and certainly a lot of peer-to-peer learning. So that's kind of, you know, a big picture of what we're trying to do. And then we try and undergird, like, all the big expenses that people have when they're starting their farms. So certainly they get a small plot of land, and we're talking about quarter acre, half acre size, right? But enough to really start putting money in the bank if you get good at, and you become real efficient in your production. And then we supply uh, some equipment. We have, you know, tractors, walk-behind tractors. We have irrigation. We have greenhouse facilities. We already have roads going to uh, places. So, you know, it's those types of expenses that really make it difficult to get started in the agriculture industry. And what what it allows is for these new entrant farmers to take their business plans and really start looking at the sales sides of things right away. So they develop their customers right away, and we walk through the process of building customers, of taking their existing business plans and modifying them to work with what the situation, um, learning kind of, again, the efficiencies in production there. Um, all these pieces uh, allow us to, to kind of help that farmer start building small, but getting to the point where they will eventually uh, move out of O'Brien Farm and onto their own farm, but they already have a big customer base. They know the players involved. Um, and it really, again, just kind of allows them uh, a heck of a leg up compared to starting from scratch. And it's great that you're doing it. It's, I don't know the right way to put it. It's unfortunate that we need private organizations or foundations like yours do this because we're the problems with the fewest farms in the country. Food security issues are very, very real regardless of where you live in the province. So bully on you for doing it. Let's take a step backwards and or back and talk about, you know, whether it be classrooms or young individuals to make their way to their farm and planting the seed of curiosity because there's nothing quite like understanding where your food comes from. So many people think their food comes from a grocery store when, okay, it does for the end consumer, but it does doesn't come from there. So how do you approach younger, whether it be full classes or the children of families who make their way to the farm? Because unless you plant the seed of curiosity, then it may not even be something they ever consider entertaining, period, because they could just pull into the Sobeys or the Colmans or the Dominions and fill up their cars. 
That's right. I think one of my favorite parts about what we do here is when I do work with the new injured farmers, um, none of them uh, are coming from like a like an agricultural background in in a traditional sense where they you know grew up on a farm and they knew that this is what they were going to do. They're more or less inheriting farms. And that's the way that kind of farming was for a super long time, right? Just inheriting farms. And we're talking about hundreds, maybe even thousands of years in the way that the agriculture sector kind of worked. And it's really kind of broken down in the last little while. So, you know, our new entrant farmers are coming from, you know, anything, students, uh, politics, teachers, um, you know, having started other startup businesses, things like that. And this is kind of, again, what they're looking at as second career opportunities. It's lifestyle change, slowing down, get building connections with the land and all. So we take that same thinking and we apply it to when we have our school uh, trips coming through, our, our students. Um, and that goes anywhere from like second, third graders, which we get a lot of, uh, up to high school kids. And we have some really cool high school programs here. But what we want to do is make sure that that uh, they understand that um, agriculture at its, you know, at its kind of most basic form is a whole bunch of different jobs at once. So it's not just that super technical side of things. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if you, you want to go to the University of Guelph or down to Dow and kind of learn how to do big production ag, that's fine. But if what we have on the island in a lot of places right now is, again, these kind of niche farms that are doing this really efficient high-end production, going to the restaurants, going to individual um, individuals buying and buying clubs and things like that, some sales to grocery stores. And so those farmers have to be um, – that have to have a good understanding of their environmental conditions, have no soil chemistry, be a bit of a mechanic, be a bit of a contractor, <laughs> build up their greenhouses and the frames and all these things, right? And so I think it's really important to actually like show the students that come through that you do all these different processes and you have all these different skills when you work on a farm, as opposed to just going in straight in and saying like, okay, let's talk about all the different little components of uh, seed, or um, this is, this, we're going to do a, a real intense lesson on soil science. It's a, it's a lot more to that in farming. And I think as we promote what we're doing and promoting the idea of, of agriculture and kind of research in agriculture on the island, it's, it's good to let people know that you do a lot of different things. It's, it's um, very multidisciplinary. Which I think, you know, is a helpful message because currently we talk about farming as difficult to get into, even more difficult to execute, and difficult to sell your wares. When you have niche and niche opportunities and niche markets and customers, and you mentioned McCain's earlier fighting for space on a big grocery store shelf or a cooler is really a long long-term goal for some that may never be achieved by most so love the approach you're taking uh final message because for me when i talk about this kind of stuff it's not only the great work you're doing for mentorship and incubation and uh, exposing young canadians or young new flanders and labradorians to the sector is that 
with the issues that we face. And if O'Brien's farm could have been an active working farm for a couple of hundred years, right there overlooking the Avalon Wall, we've got to get municipalities on board to update their vision for food security and proximity concerns because we can indeed do more. Dealing with documents from the British government pre-Confederation to guide our bylaws regarding backyard farming or homesteading is not doing anyone any favors. So we've just got to change our tune on how we think about this because if we're going to be fully reliant on import, and I know like the Food Producers Forum, Dan Rubin and them, we've probably used bad numbers over the years with reliance on 90% of imports now that we have more updated info, but to rest on our laurels here will be a distinct and serious mistake, and you guys are going to play a prominent role in making things better. Last word goes to you, Aaron, before we say goodbye. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope a lot of people come by and visit the farm. I mean, I think uh, one of the things, and, and to your point there, Patty, is that, you know, farms don't always have to be scary places either, right? No. Um, farms can be a bit of a park, and that's what we try and have up here, too. So we want we want people to come visit our farm. We want them to see what we're doing, um, talk with the farmers that we have here, talk with us, see the history side of things, um, understand where it's coming from and why it needs to continue uh, well into the future and uh yeah we're open to the public so come on by wednesday to sunday for a look around appreciate your time good luck aaron thank you much patty you're welcome take care bye-bye aaron rogers is the manager at o'brien's farm let's take a break we were oh no you want me to take randy here before i go david he's on the phone he told me do you want me to take randy okay let's go line number one randy you're on the air hello patty how you doing okay you i'm out there my friend is on his cul-de-sac on Caldwell Place, right? And there's youngsters going there back and forth, back and forth. Youngsters will be youngsters. And they're coming down the road, look around the highway, and they're going to hit one of those youngsters. They should put speed bumps on them. Well, I guess for speed calming in the city of Mount Pearl, they've kind of leaned on the province's pilot project with uh, putting these speed cameras in. But here where I live in St. John's, there's more speed bumps than ever before. They're pretty effective. But, you know, a thought offered to me was if I have, say, for instance, Ennis Avenue with speed bumps, yeah. I'll slow down to go over the bump, but then I'll go faster between the bumps to make up time. So I get where you're coming yeah. from. But the, my favorites are not only these cameras, which I think are an excellent idea, are those uh, those signs, those displays that say you are going this fast. Because sometimes we get velocitized and don't realize I'm going 55 in a 30 zone without, you know, being super attentive to my speedometer. But I think, you know, every bit of speed calming measures that we can think about from roundabouts to speed cameras to bumps to bu- jump outs or butt outs in the curb, let's do them. Well, I'll tell you something now. Some, some young's going to get killed and then it's too late. That is absolutely right. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. I don't know why anyone would be speeding no. on the cul-de-sac. Unless the kind of car can fly. Yeah, but even if you had Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, you know, cul-de-sac's not a spot for that to be flying around. No. It's oh. pretty bad. You don't go and play on the sidewalk for a the street. That's the scene. Yeah. I'm, I'm, well, something's got to be done. Something's got to be done. You know what's got to be done? People got to slow the hell down. Yeah. Period. I think they're on the second highway. They said it was about 43 miles now on Kulsek. It's going to get worse in the winter when the roads, I see. You said 43 miles an hour. You got the speed gun out, or you are just taking a guess? Just taking a guess around there. Yeah, okay. That's a fair guess. But you shouldn't have to put, the, put on the gas. It's like a coat. 
Yeah, the loud the loud pedal doesn't belong uh, too active on a, a cul-de-sac or virtually anywhere else in the residential setting. I got to get to the break, Randy, but hopefully they hear your message of slow down. Okay, buddy. Hey, buddy. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the end of the school year, specifically assessments and preparation for the next grade level, whether that be 12 to your first year post-secondary or anywhere within K-2-12. Trent Langdon with the NLTA. He's the president. Right after this, don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Let's take it more to the president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association. That's Trent Langdon. Trent, you're on the air. Good morning, Brad. How have you been? That's kind. How about you? Doing well, sir. Thanks. I just wanted to give a quick call in uh, to discuss uh, just some year-end stuff. So this is a great opportunity for us. Yeah, I don't know where you want to start because if we are talking about things and we've discussed a lot of different moving parts inside the K-12 system, substitutes and permanent full-time teachers and the conditions of schools and stuff. But today I'd like to focus in on curriculum, curriculum development, and the whole concept of learning loss. I've always been confused as to why it didn't get more attention, whether it be from the department or the NLTA or anybody else, because in other provinces, when I read their newspapers, they very quickly in 2020, early 21, started to think about, evaluate, and come up with uh, approaches to deal with what is a very real concept of, of learning loss, what fits and starts and hybrid systems and the schools closed and what have you. What have we done in this province? Do you know? Well, t- uh, to my knowledge, you know, no doubt the uh, uh, the department is, is is looking at all those things as well, especially when it looks at standardized assessments and, and things they can do to improve. Uh, our stance has always been, um, uh, you know, even prior to COVID, is that many times the COVID, or the curriculum seems very heavy, and they're, we're squeezing so much into a short time frame. Certainly for certain subjects like like mathematics, and uh, and for that reason, uh, it gets heavy and gets quick for a lot of, of, of children. And then when they move on to university and so on, uh, they they struggle. But certainly when you add in COVID, now uh, those question marks are are, are very extensive, and uh, we're, we're at a situation now where we, we still don't know what impacts there's going to be. But in my discussions with Memorial and other Groups, they're seeing it firsthand. They're seeing uh, new new faces struggle with uh, within the first year, whether they're they're failing out or the grades aren't quite where they need to be, or they need to do uh, some uh, supplementary exams, that type of stuff. So it's it's a real thing, and we're seeing it at every level. We're seeing kids come from uh, elementary school into junior high ill prepared, and junior high into senior. I, I guess. And answer your initial question around why it may not be getting as much focus is that you know when, when we're, we have a significant crisis in the system right now of, of teacher shortages uh, that seems to be getting uh, a focus more so than than the longer term impacts of assessment. Okay, if I look at say for instance Ontario, they acknowledged it was happening, and as a result they adjusted the curriculum. Yeah. So whether it be, you know, taking away the fact that at, you know, many school years, even pre-pandemic, based on whether it be snow days or other issues, sometimes we feel like there's a real compressed time frame where we're really trying to deliver a yes. lot of curriculum in a very yes. short span, which I, th- I think has only been intensified in the last few years. So have we actually adjusted curriculum as a reality to what's been done by teachers and consequently learned by students? Right, yeah, and, and again, we're still on the on the heels of uh, of COVID and, and still within. So um, we we won't know for many years what truly what's going on. I do know government is is looking at curriculum, uh, specifically junior high curriculum, uh, and as a junior high teacher for years myself, that that is certainly one area that needs uh, additional work. Uh, but again, is is it too compacted? Are we truly preparing kids with the skills they need when they come out? Are we are we uh, offering the same type of programming to every child that comes through in spite of their of their 
their capabilities and so on. Uh, so those types of approaches uh, are uh, in this province is, is well overdue. And you ask any um, program development specialist who, who does this kind of work, and a lot of this stuff is dated. Uh, we bring in new things uh, here and there. Uh, but, um, you know, one of the largest challenges for us as an association is we have um, a curriculum, uh, the data piece, as I just meant it, mentioned, but also um, we're, we're coming to a point with a shortage of teachers and so on where m many of these things cannot even get covered because um, uh, classes are doubled up and so on. So you, you can see why the more acute issue right now is making sure there's feet on the ground to dig into the curriculum. Uh, but one of the big pushes we've had with government is don't bring any new initiatives in until we've we've solidified uh, the foundation. Okay, so uh, people listening to the program and you try to take this for how it's intended, yep. there would be a different understanding of curriculum and assessing students if I'm a veteran teacher of 25 years versus someone very fresh out of university in my first couple of years as a permanent teacher. So when we talk about modern day assessments, and I'm not trying to imply that the only way to do this is to sit at the kitchen table and wrote learn your times tables and exams are the only way to go, but without standardized testing, it does provide a bit of a weird playing field for whether it be preparation and competition for placements in university, which has always been a reality. And we're talking about a global community looking for select few opportunities in a very, very compressed world, economically speaking. So what about how we assess kids? What are the teachers actually saying? Because if I'm old school, I yearn for the days of public exams. If I'm new, I figured out another different, I don't know if it's better or worse way to do it, but it's a different way. No, I think you're right. It depends on the, on the professional teacher that that you're speaking with. Some prefer the more the more traditional ways. Others are uh, are full of uh, great energy to try and try new ideas, alternative types of learning and assessment. Um, and we, we, by far, the majority have now shifted into that realm. Uh, I, as an educator myself, I truly believe there's a time and place for all those things. Um, we just don't want to see as a as a uh, as an association and as a province uh, where standardized assessment becomes the the, the, the primary means of, of educating. Uh, we've seen changes into uh, gradeless report cards. We've seen uh, other types of initiatives that overall, in the end, if we can prove that a child has met the outcomes, that's truly where it stands. And uh, it's about providing opportunities to, to all of our kids. And uh, But again, it depends on the educator you speak with, I think, as to what they truly prefer. Is the new, current, modern way working? Uh, I, I would I, I like to think so and I do think so I, I do think that the opportunity to to put the the power back into the hands of the educator to decide what's the best means of which to get this information uh, over to a class obviously the size of the class is significant as well if you've got a smaller number of children if you've got a, a group of children in your class with uh, uh, immense needs you know that's gonna that's going to alter your, your approach to things so it really depends the lay of the land that's in front of you on any given day or any given school year depends on the types of assessment you can utilize and try because what works one year may not work in the other. Um, so we've been real advocates of allowing teachers, uh, providing them with the proper professional learning, with the with the freedom within their classrooms to try new things. Because uh, again, you don't have to be, be behind those four walls to, to truly uh, learn, nor do you uh, need to go with your old-fashioned paper and pencil assessment to to get a feel for what what a, a child can or cannot do. 
it's a mercurial world and school and curriculum long been strictly or mostly about reading, writing and arithmetic. Yeah. And of course, that absolutely has to be the foundation of the curriculum. But I wonder, you know, and not to be too tangential and too mm-hmm. outer spacey, but, <laughs> you know, whether it be real life issues like first aid or whether it be learn how to swim or whether it be learning how to critically assess news and developing issues of the day or climate change or stuff, stuff that is not, you don't have to be fully based in science, in the standard science curriculum, but knowing what the world presents and how to navigate what has become a trickier world basically because of social media, because now echo chambers are easy to fall into. Rabbit holes are one step away from every child coming out of school or advancing through school. So critical thought is a hard thing to talk about when devising curriculum, but it doesn't seem to be a big part of it unless we change the way we do uh, word problems in mathematics. So I hope you know what that question means, because um, I think we're kind of missing some of those core lifestyle or, or, pardon me, core abilities to navigate what is a very dirty and messy world out there if we just simply rely on curriculum the way we knew it when I was a kid. I, I, I totally know what you mean, and uh, I hear regularly from uh, from government officials that curriculum renewal is, is currently underway, uh, but, I'll, you know, I'll go to Labrador for a second. You know, the outdoor learning opportunities that a lot of teachers are using up there, not just in Labrador, certainly, but in a lot of the remote and rural areas, um, uh, you know, even just going out and building a campfire with your class and, and uh, land survival, and, and I, you know, I have a good friend who retired not long ago who he used to start every class in spite of what he was teaching with pulling out the first page of the newspaper and going through every story. And when that child left that left that class at the end of that day or at the end of the period, had a, a, had a snippet of what was going on in the world at any given time. But it's those life skills around uh, your traditional life skills, but also what does it mean to be on social media? Uh, we do a lot of good work with Media Smarts and other groups around the country um, to give, uh, give our kids a fighting chance really because all it takes and is one wrong move on social media or to become uh, uh, or moving into the realm of having an addiction uh, in those whether it be gaming whether it be in social media or, or uh, posting inappropriate things uh, it can it can taint uh, your future and taint, taint your experience so uh, it's about the critical analysis of what's going on viewing the war in Ukraine viewing the rights of uh, 2SLGBTQAI uh, individuals in our community uh, and looking at it from a a stable lens versus automatically assuming uh, a stance. So all of those types of things, the critical analysis uh, in, in any education system is essential, and I would like nothing more than to see that to be the root of all. Trent, appreciate the time. Anything else uh, regarding the end of the school year? No, just overall, Patty, again, I just want to say thanks to you for your support of, uh, of education as a whole in this province and our opportunity to go through you to, to get some key information out. But uh, uh, we again, I'll, I've, I've said it several times before the, the, the summer months brings uh, brings with it uh, concerns around safety for children and families that's number one but number two uh, I don't want education to fall off the radar over the summer it's, it's quite common for that to happen and then oh let's pick it up in September let's let's keep the momentum moving and the pressure on and uh, we'll be ready to hit uh, hit the ground running in the fall yeah because September is around the corner so whether it be about curriculum or lessons learned from the Carter Churchill case or uh, yeah. school safety yeah. regarding PWC and stuff there's a lot yet to discuss so we can do that throughout the summer just to keep it on the front to medium burner. Be my pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks, Trent. Take care, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Trent Langman, president of the NLTA. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, the Shanty Man.
He's more than the shanty man. Co-founder of Great Big C, of course, he's a recovery advocate, he's a keynote speaker, he's an author, and he's going to talk about singing the big songbook right after this. Sean McCann, don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, I did say Sean McCann's going to join us, but of course, we're nudging up against the news, and I can't possibly get through a chat with Mr. McCann in 90 seconds. So very quickly, again, I'm sometimes get a bit of a giggle out of the fact that I get condemned for not bringing up one subject or another when I say every single day the subjects are up to you so call out whatever you like this particular story and I don't know if it was the person in Carbonier who brought it to the attention of the town council but it's the issue of the French marauder Pierre Lemoyne de Breville who came to Newfoundland in 1696 of course his mission was to destroy a bunch of English settlements, of which he did, some 35 of them, including the town of Carbonier. So the residents of Carbonier escaped to Carbonier Island to uh, avoid the wrath of this marauder murderer, uh, Deberville. But there's a street in Carbonier named after him. You know, I don't think it's the same conversation about some of the statues and names on buildings that have been hauled down, taken down, struck down. You know, the issue with uh, statues or history or names on buildings or history when actual fact books are history. But they're talking about the potential for the town council, which apparently they have zero uh, appetite for changing the name of that street. But it is curious that you can indeed. Now, it would be appropriate if a Deberville street was a dead end, but 35 communities destroyed by fire by uh, Pierre Lemoyne and Deberville. And so someone asked me why I didn't bring it up because, I don't know, some of those topics, I'm not so sure how many people care about it, but it doesn't look like it's a big deal to the Carbonier Town Council. Maybe it's a big deal to you or something in a similar envelope. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, you stay right there, McCann. Sean McCann after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. As advertised, let's go to line number four and say good morning to the Shanty Man, one of the founders of the Great Big C, author, speaker, recovery addict, my buddy Sean McCann. Sean, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you? Couldn't be better. How about you? I'm good, man. I just finished my great big yoga routine. I can still touch my big toes. I can't. Uh, and it wasn't so long oh, ago sorry. I couldn't see my big toes. So, <laughs> Sean, you know, I'm actually curious about this on a personal level. Like seeing my family doctor talk about mindfulness or meditating or yoga. What are the benefits of yoga? What have they been for you? For me, it's been uh, I'm, I'm a terrible meditator, man. I don't have the patience. I try really hard, and I just can't get there. But physically, it keeps my... Now, 56-year-old shantyman body tuned in a little bit. And, uh, you know, I just do a little bit every day, sometimes twice a day. It might even be four or five minutes. And, uh, you know, it just keeps me able to um, keep moving, you know. And I've learned that it's, it's preventative medicine for me because I still jump around a lot on stage. i got to stomp. i got to sing. I gotta be in shape to be singing great big C songs, man. That you do. Before we get into the fact that this is a thirtieth anniversary of absolutely what I think would kind of be considered one of Canada's favorite bands, bring us back to the beginning before we fast forward to the to today and the future. We were all in university in Mon doing our degrees and uh we all kind of hooked up. We were all playing in bars. Myself and Daryl and Bob and Jackie St. Croix were playing in a band called Rankin Street. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we got to be half notorious downtown and playing the Nautical Nellies and the Ship and Greensleeves and all any bars who'd hire us, really. And Alan was doing, uh, he was in a duo called Staggering Home. And uh, I literally left Nautical Nellies one night and went over to watch him. 
And I thought I was just blown away by, by the way he approached the audience, which was a pretty small audience. It was mostly his family. But he uh, he he did that show. He had lights. He had, he had the presence of mind to bring lights, which none of us had before. Shined at himself, and he was like he was playing Wembley Stadium, like he was all all 100% doing it, you know, as if he was playing for thousands. And then I realized, like, if we could combine our uh, our forces, we could be we could really be strong. And uh, that's kind of how it started in 1992. I remember those days. That was part of our scene, and they were really fun memories, to be honest with you. And so now you're going to do this tribute show, the so-called tip of the hat to the band. Tell us about what you, what's going to happen if I go see you perform and singing the great big songbook. Well, I expect you will be there, Patty. I hope you come out on July 22nd. The sun's going to be shining in the uh, sanctuary, the Gary United. And I'll be singing all the hits, you know. I'll be doing... Uh, all the songs that trigger memories, positive memories for me and for the fans. This is, this is, uh, you know, we just came out of COVID, and at the end of all that, that two years of being grounded at home, I really wanted. I, I, there's a thirst in the world for for something happy, for a reason to celebrate in a safe way, and uh, I couldn't think of a better thing to celebrate than the 30th anniversary of my favorite band. And, you know, I look, I started to go through the catalog of songs, and a lot of them are about drinking. I, you know, I have to admit that. And I've been in recovery for 12 years. I've been sober for 12 years. But a lot of the songs, like you just said, they trigger positive memories. We were all younger. We, it seemed to be, a, you know, things were tough in 1993 when we started with the moratorium and all that. But we, we had a sense that if you tried hard enough, there was a future and that there was good out there and things weren't this was before the internet and certainly before social media and you know there was less out there in our face every day to be afraid of and that's the kind of message that i want to bring forward i want people to remember those feelings because i believe we can achieve that in the world you know we don't have to accept the world that's fed to us every day through our screens we can make the world what what we want it to be and i would like to think that if we all found the middle again it would be a happier place for everybody how do you find the positive and the optimism? Is it a, a matter of shelving some of the other not-so-great memories? Is it compartmentalizing, or is it a concerted effort to bring the positive vibe to the 30th anniversary? Yeah, and there was there was issues like that. I mean, the band didn't end well, and, and I'll take one-third of the blame for that. I was sober for the last tour on the Great Big Bus, and that was a lot. That was a bridge too far. It caused a lot of tension, and it, and it caused some friendships, and... Uh, you know, I think over the course of COVID, I personally, like, once we saw these major conflicts erupting in the world, I mean, I I thought that we'd come out of COVID and we'd all be ready to hug and kiss each other like it'd be the summer of love. Everyone would be happy to be together again. And that's not the case. And uh, I'm not even sure why that is, Patty, but I, I for one, am, I don't want to be adding any, not one iota to conflict into the world today. I want to be the opposite of that. And uh so with that in mind, again, I just, uh, yeah, it's not about suppressing negative en- uh, memories. It's more about focusing on the positive and what good these songs can bring. And, and what I know for sure is that when people come together face-to-face, like on July 22nd at the Sanctuary, Gower United, we'll be, we'll be together singing songs that we know and that we love, and that that, that feeling is what we got to take away from that show and into our day, day-to-day lives. And that will make a difference in our day-to-day lives. 
Yeah, I knew all of you guys, or I know all of you guys, and this is neither here nor there, but whether I'd be living in different parts of the country, you guys would come to town, you know, between yourself and Bob and Alan and the big force of nature that Alan is, the guy that knew everybody on the ground and everybody knew him was Daryl. Daryl. Yeah, the nicest guy in the band still is. Yeah, great kid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He, uh, you know, he was he was our he was the guy who actually our, our translator, our mediator. Our, he was the guy who Daryl could easily ha- talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime, and he just made. Without him, I don't think we would have survived the first national tour we did because he was the. The middleman. He was the guy who dealt directly with the promoters. The obvious question would be here in the 30th anniversary, and you released the big box set, and I've had sold millions of copies between all the boys and the band. So, you know, the obvious question is how does the conversation sound between all of the former band members about this anniversary and the potential to mend old wounds and to get back to the bright side that was GBS and maybe a reunion? How does that sound? Well, we again at the end of the pandemic, I threw the idea out to the lads. My, my, you know, the the, the goal really was to, to see if we could get together and and do a show or even a song, and um, that didn't happen. And because people are busy, and that's understandable, you know. And uh, but what did happen was we did have the conversation, and that's something that hasn't happened in a decade. So I I, I consider that a forward moving thing, and we just managed. Uh, to sign a new deal with Warner Brothers, which, to be honest, I don't understand, but I, I agreed to it because they it was important to Bob and Alan. So I, I just feel like, you know, again, I don't want to add to conflict. I want to be agreeable. For a long time, I've been kind of labeled the guy who broke the band up, which I feel is unfair. I prob- arguably wasn't the first to leave, <laughs> depending on how you define that. But I mean, and, I, and if I if I am that guy, it was for good reasons, you know. And I just want to make sure everyone knows that I am available. I would like nothing more than to do one final great big C show. I would love to do that, and they know that. And you know what? At least now we're talking, and maybe someday it'll happen. But it won't be this year. But what will happen on July 22nd <laughs> at the sanctuary is great big C songs will be sung. And, you know, the band will be my audience. They'll come and they'll sing their hearts out. I've just done this show 33 times across the country. Most of the shows sold out. And without fail, the crowds have been with me word for word. They are dying for a great big C reunion. Sean, it's good to have you on the show. You sound like you're in a good place. I'm feeling pretty good, man. I'm, I've had a good year again compared to the last couple of years. This is uh, my worst day now is, is way better than my best day last year this time. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to stay positive and, and there's a lot of negative you see every day. I've got kids and, um, and I, you know, I want the world to be a better place for them. And I do believe music has a role to play, a, a powerful role, Patty. And it, uh, you mentioned earlier, you remember the good times. Yeah, it's important that we remember them. And it's important that we remember that we have the power to bring those times back. We can do that. 100%. And so belated Happy Father's Day to you. And I don't think you got to it, but the where the when's for the concert. <laughs> Maybe I failed to mention it. <laughs> July 22nd, Patty, at 7 o'clock, down at the Gower United Church. And I think you're the opening act. I hope you are anyway. Let's negotiate. I'm working on my routine. I'm thinking about interpretive dance. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work, man. We look at each other's toes. <laughs> where, <do we laughs> where, where, and when, and how can I get a ticket? <laughs> 
Only at www.seanthecansings.com. You can get it on my website. Order it. My wife, Andrea, will send you your ticket. And uh, you should do that because uh, we will sell tickets at the door, but they'll cost more. It'll be 50 bucks cash at the door because we don't we're not taking any internet devices or anything like that so save yourself some money and uh order in advance and uh and come down and sing bring your uh bring your bring your lungs and your voices and your big hearts and we'll see you together good to have you on sean i wish you good luck safe travels break every leg in the house and i suppose on that front uh, say hello to your big piggies for me I will, buddy. Same to you. Thanks again, Patty. Always a pleasure to talk. My pleasure. All the best, Sean. Bye-bye. Sean McCann, the shanty man, coming to town to sing the great big songbook. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, the food fishery in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Sean, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How you doing? Okay, thanks. How you doing? Wonderful, wonderful. Hopefully the weather will improve tomorrow. Let's hope. Uh, just a quick note, um, and I sent you a copy of an email. Um, the food, back to the food fishery, and you know, I know it's probably just pointless to say anything, but you know, here we here we go once again. Uh, Ten days away from it opening, and finally, somebody up in Ottawa, in uh, Joyce Murray's department, gets around to sending out the notice. Right? I mean, this is just insane that this happens every year, and why it just isn't the same every year? Like, what what is the big to do, or what are we? trying to wait for to make this announcement. It makes no sense to me why they just can't say it, because um, this, I would imagine, is big in the lives of a whole lot of people, and maybe they just said, screw it, Uh, they know that it's going to get announced anyway, but there's a whole, you know, obviously gambit of people out there in the recreational marine business and this sort of stuff, not even to mention individuals who intend on buying a boat, and you can't make decisions because they won't announce the friggin' food fishery. Yeah, now I don't know how many people it impacts with the unknowns of the dates, even though they've been fairly predictable over the years. I just think the fundamental question is, when was the decision arrived at? When was it a done deal? If it was two weeks ago, then why exactly do you wait? I just don't really understand it. People will say, well, folks want to plan their vacation. Maybe that's true for some. Maybe it's some locals who would like to book their vacation in an industry or a company where it's, you know, you need a lot of advance notice to get your uh, hopeful time off during the summer. I just wonder why they wait. I, I just don't really understand it. But I think it's sort of part and parcel with a lot of announcements that uh, the department makes about tack and about when the fishery starts and all these types of things, even for the commercial crowds. So I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah, and, and but to me, with this, uh, and not to get deep into that aspect, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what decision is there to be made. What is that decision being predicated on? Don't know. There isn't. You know, we take a small amount of fish out of the, out of the uh, water for recreational fishery, and I do it every year. And last year, actually, to my amazement, it seemed like there was less and less people out there. But that's just that's just one aspect. Of, but the bigger aspect of it is, why is it that we have it for two months, and then we have this foolish thing in December, October, where you can fish, and the week is in December, October? Like, it makes no sense. Why? Two things. Why does it stop at all? Like, what's going to happen in September, October? And really, it should start earlier, like now, because as soon as the gill nets go out, uh, thankfully, Petty Harbor doesn't gill net the, the you know, handline. But every place else that you go that the gill net, that's the end of it. Once the gill nets go in the water, a day later, she's done, right? You can't catch anything. You know, the gill nets take, the, the gill nets just wipe, wipe the place out. I think it was pretty successful for individuals out on the water for the recreational food fishery last year. What's oh, for us, ladies? 
but but my point is why what's with this breaking it like what what's the point of the break what's it doing giving the fish a break no so it opens up on the first of july runs to september 4th and then reopens on the 23rd i guess the wait into july is basically the hope that some of the potential not great spring weather hopefully will be behind us because still when you have that compressed season inevitably people will make a very poor decision to go out on the water in a vessel that's not conducive to the waves so right. that's my concern as much and, as anything else there oh okay so yeah and i can buy that that you know people don't have the ability to make up their own minds so the government has to do it for them i didn't say but, that but but if that but if that's the case why are we fishing in September? I couldn't fish in September last year or the year before, safely. Well, whatever you just said, I did not say. Um, no, no, but I, I like if 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 that's what they're doing. If if that's if the if if the issue that you note is the issue they're using to delay it, well, then so be it. But that if that's in fact the case, it makes even less sense to delay it in the fall because the fall is the fall. And when the winds come up and the weather gets cold and uh, that sort of thing, and the last two years I didn't fish. You just couldn't do it. You know, it was unsafe. It was cold. So I don't know. It just seems to me this whole rigmarole and, and the other things that have gone on with, you know, the, the crab fishery or whatever, the other fisheries, I mean, this just seems to me like some reflection of, you know, Joyce Murray in an apartment. And, guys, if you can't make this decision and make it a lot um, easier, and even this, we're back to the 15 fish per boat or five per person or whatever the real rule is on that. I mean, is this just reflective of the whole show going on up there? Like, this is a trivial little decision that they take every year, it takes forever to make. Like, it's, it's, to me, it's just a part of insanity. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it's, I talk about it almost yeah. every single year, I suppose, about the delay when, in fact, it comes out to be virtually the exact same thing. This year starts yeah. on Canada Day or Memorial Day. Last year started on the 2nd, 39 days, same rules with trip limits, so nothing really changes. You can almost copy and paste it and bank on it being very, very similar, if not exactly the same thing year over year. No yeah. license, no tags, all the same stuff. Yeah. Anyway, but the biggest thing for me is, is uh, well, uh, the 15-boat limit. I, I, we'll debate that, I guess, through the season. Again, and somebody will step up and say that's that's not really true. It's, you know, five per person. Uh, again, because supposedly that we can't decide that we shouldn't put six people in a 12-foot boat or something like that. Uh, and that's what was told to me by a DFO officer, that it was a safety. It was a safety issue. But the bigger issue, and I'll close on it, is just the – the length of time like why why does it end and why isn't that week in august you know that's when everybody's having their vacation here but anyway i'll leave it at that sir and uh, thank you kindly i appreciate the time thanks sean okay. bye now. all right bye-bye all right so where would you like me to go here david two fine let's go to line number two ron you're on the air hi patty uh first time caller welcome to the show uh thank you uh, patty i have a uh, a residence in the town of bay roberts and uh, I'm having water and sewage issues uh, ever since 2017. Uh, at that time, they had a water sewage infrastructure and multiple pump lift stations installed. Yeah. And that was, I guess, to treat the raw sewage and uh, I guess to become an environmentally friendly community to do business with. Uh, ever since the installation of those pumps in Bay Roberts, uh, I've, I, I, when it rains, or at least 10 to 15 times annually, 
I can't use my residence because water bellows back up through uh, my either my toilet or my shower or my sink because the pumps uh, break down uh, all the time or it can't handle that capacity, uh, especially when it rains. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, I went out the last two weeks in my residence in Bay Roberts, and twice on two occasions the pumps have been broke. I go to, and I don't know the pumps are broke. So when I flush the toilet, water bellows out over as the toilet flooded. So I called the town of Bay Roberts several times, you know, uh, more than 40 incidents I've called them on. And they come down and they say, well, you know, we got to try to look at the pumps, Ron, or electronic controllers. But, Patty, it's been 10 to 15 times every year. They've never fixed it. And the problem is my house is the last house at the end of the line, I guess. And I'm the first person to see any issues with regards to backup sewage and, and so forth. And, Patty, and when my toilets don't work, what happens out in the manhole on the public road, there's raw sewage, there's feminine hygiene products bellowing out of the man, man, man covers. I've called the, the, the town council. I've spoken to uh, former Mayor Philip Woods. Now I sent a letter to Mayor Walter Yetman. I spoke to Nigel Black, the administrator of Bay Roberts, and I've been dealing for the last five years with Public Works' Sean Elms, and I, I feel that I've been getting a runaround, being misled, because many times, Patty, I call, and they say, oh, the pumps are running, and uh, I'd wait. Uh, we would sent a man down, a technician down there, to fix the pumps, and they're running. So I've been waiting by the pump station for the technician to come down. So I caught these, uh, the director of public works in multiple lies, misinforming me, misleading me, and then I guess when he realizes that I'm down there waiting, he'll send someone down. But most times the pumps can't be reset, and they need to get a contractor in. So the last five years in the town of Bay Roberts, I haven't been able to utilize my residence. So what happens, Patty? I've got two kids and my wife. We go out there three times out of the week. And at 10 o'clock at night, many occasions, my two kids will say, I've got to use the washroom. So at 10 o'clock at night, there's no uh, facilities available in the town of Bay Roberts. Everything is closed. So then I have to uproot my, my family and come back to St. John's to my primary residence. Yeah, it's a nuisance. Just so I have a firm understanding or the best I can, what exactly is causing the backup in the, your home? Is it a malfunction with the lift station, inability to reset it before it comes back flows your way, or what exactly is happening? So I've been informed that it's been two things. One, that the pumps are under capacity, that they can't handle the flow, as well as there's a electronic controller issues with the, with the installation, and they had to get people out to, I guess, uh, troubleshoot the controllers. But... Patty, it's been 10 to 15 occasions every year, and the last five years, it's got so bad. My two sons, who we go quadding and fishing and skidooing out there all year, my two sons no longer go out to visit. They, have visit, they haven't visited the Bay Roberts in a year. They, they have no time for the Bay Roberts because of the issues that we have to uproot at many occasions, just like uh, this weekend past. 
me and my wife went out to spend Father's Day in Bay Roberts. My wife needed to use the washroom. I called at 2 o'clock in the day uh, to tell him that I don't think the pumps are working because my toilet's overflowing. Anyway, they comes down at 9 o'clock at night and says, oh, by the way, the pumps are not working. we got to get someone to come in. So I had to uproot my wife and myself to go back to St. John's at 10 o'clock at night. Numerous occasions we're doing this. And my, now my wife is at the point that she's starting to have issues with going out to Bay Roberts because the town council in Bay Roberts will not fix the problem. And it's been five years. So I sent a letter to Pam Parsons, the MHA. I'm asking her to intervene on my behalf to see what she can do. But, Patty, is there anything else that I can do? You know, your thoughts on it. Oh, well, I think it's ridiculous that you're facing it for as long as you have. Uh, quick question, though. Are you able to get and to keep home insurance? Yes, I have home insurance because I guess I got a backflow valve in my uh, residence, and then with the pressure, uh, the water won't come back. But when I flush my toilet or wash my hands or get a shower, I guess the, the pressure then just bubbles that right out. And I, Patty, I have videos of my toilets overflowing them, busting out over on the floor. I have feminine hygiene products and sewage on the road, on the public road. I have all that. I have videos and pictures of all that and dealings with the town council of Bay Roberts the last five years. And it's like, you know, they, they, they pie you off and they, and, and they hope that you go away. But I'm paying my taxes, Patty. I pay for water and sewer. If I didn't pay it, they'd come down and cut my water off, wouldn't For sure. Uh, right? Very likely. I wouldn't know where to direct you. As much as I wish I did know, Ron, I'd be curious to hear what your member says because sometimes they might be your advocate or your champion, but sometimes when it's a municipal issue, they'll simply push you, point you back to the same folks that have been very unhelpful uh, as you deal with this issue uh, because of the time on the clock I have to get to the news but is there anything else you'd like to say but I would like to hear back from you about what uh, Miss Parsons or Minister Parsons has to say sure yes Patty uh, I'll, uh, I'll call you back and give you feedback when I hear from Pam uh, and hopefully she can resolve the problem before I go to NTV or CBC News on this because I need some some closure or some resolution but based on my per- personal experience Patty and discussions with the residents uh, people who want to do business or live in Bay Roberts, they should think twice before investing, especially if they got to deal with the public works. Well, that is something that I'm sure might have some impact with the council. And going to the other media outlets, please do if you think it would be helpful. But you hit the masses here this morning. And please do get back to me. Let me know what happens with Minister Parsons. And if nothing, we'll revisit it. Thanks, Patty. Have a good day. You too, Ron. All the best. Bye-bye. I mean, really? That's a long time and a lot of separate issues or instances. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about vitamin D or the lack thereof. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Tom, you're on the air. Line one, Tom? Hey, Patty. Hey there. Sorry about that, buddy. No problem. So I want to start with um, the Waterford Valley Rotary is hosting the car show this Saturday. The weather's looking great, and it's going to be at Boring Park. And there's classic, modern, and electric vehicles, and there's still space for some more vehicles as well. Uh, We're going to bouncy castles and different food and stuff like that. So we're inviting everybody to come down 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., Barring park across from the pool on Saturday and the rain day for Sunday, although the weather's looking good, so hopefully we won't need to move it to Sunday. Hopefully not. 
I've, I've been reflecting a lot on the uh, this dreary weather, and, and for a lot of people, I know we hear this about vitamin D, but it's even a bigger issue. And most Newfoundlanders and Labradorians probably are already aware that basically October to March, the sun is too low in the sky. We don't get UVB, and UVB is actually what our skin uses to create vitamin D, like naturally within our bodies. So, um, and it's even worse again this year, of course. And then there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time inside, and those people also. Now, you only need around nine minutes of sun during the times of the year when the sun is high enough in the sky to get uh, your UVB that you need to produce enough vitamin D. But uh, for everybody, especially you know, if you're not someone who gets to spend a lot of time in the sun, uh, everybody should be taking a supplement. And the uh, the, re- the experts recommend uh, 600 uh, international units every day uh, for people under 70, and then 70 and older, 800 international units as a minimum. The maximum you should take is 4,000 international units. So, you know, it's, it's really important. Vitamin D is a, is actually, they're, they're still trying to discover because apparently most of the cells in our body, most of the major organs have vitamin D receptors. So we really don't know everything it does, but we do know uh, primarily the thing we always focused on was that it helps in the absorption of phosphorus and calcium. But we also now know it, it actually can be a factor in cancer cells multiplying. So cell, cell uh, multiplication, it also helps with inflammation uh, and, and, you know, many other uses that, that Newfoundlanders Labradorians definitely could have a bit of help with, like glucose, glucose also stabilization, sugar in your blood. What did you say about inflammation and vitamin D? Well, they, they say vitamin D actually will help minimize inflammation. So it helps your body. It basically just helps all the systems in your body work somehow. A lot of things we really don't know why, but there are studies out there now that indicate that it will reduce inflammation in your body as an anti-inflammatory. I mean, the moral story is everybody should have it for all the reasons they should have it and all the bonuses. Well, that's great. Um, but yeah, inflammation is one of the things that they say vitamin D helps with, reduces inflammation. Yeah, building uh, bone growth. And I didn't know about inflammation, to be honest with you, but it also also plays a role in controlling infections. So it's a widespread positive impact of vitamin D, no doubt. I do take a supplement. Yeah, me too. And, and I do it pretty well year-round, unless I've been out in the sun a lot. I, I want to I quickly uh, go back. So Trent, Trent Langdon was on the Hinalean LTA, and... You asked him a very direct question, uh, which was, is what we're doing working? And he then deferred to the Department of Education is working on programming. And, and you know, as we, you know, this Kids and No Body Safety Program, um, you know, we've been through this for the last five years watching the glacial pace that the Department of Education works at. And I, I would like to, you know, hold a mirror up to Trent and, and to the, his people that he represents within education. I mean, I'm in a school now. I've been in 40 schools, you know, this year, and I look at the kids. And, you know, I I was in high school last week, and it was Tuesday. And most of the kids weren't coming to school because they, they don't do exams. So, And that was last Tuesday. So when Trent says there's not enough room for – not enough time for this, not time that, I harken back to St. Bonds within a week of COVID. You know, he actually brought up the COVID excuse, which – is a real, you know, really is a great excuse for people to keep repeating over and over again. But I mean, we, if we don't collectively figure out a way, last week Eugene Manning said, you know, it's getting to be about survival, and you know, when it comes to healthcare, and you know, I just it seems like there's a real lack of, I guess, moral courage or 
you know, people looking for the solutions, and, and the solutions are in the mirror for most of us. You know? But the difference between the NLTA and St. Bonds is St. Bonds, as a community, very nimble, can make their own decisions, which impacts nobody but St. Bonds, versus the way the schools were operated, closed, hybrid systems. That wasn't a decision made at the NLTA. No, but the NLTA has a large bit of influence. Like, for example, let's just say that there was a there was an action group put together, which hopefully there was somewhere in the back ends of the Department of Education that obviously NLTA would be represented at. And let's just say that someone said, you know, we've lost a couple of months of learning. Learning loss, such a big deal. Well, maybe, you know, teachers were off for a bit because, you know, schools were closed for a period before we went to hybrid. Maybe we should do school in July or August. Imagine that was floated. Imagine the reaction that would be had from the people who reacted to that. Now, if... I'm not saying that that was a good or bad idea, but in other provinces they've pivoted. They've, you know, they, they really because it really mattered. And and what I my observation is that people do care, but they don't care enough. And and I don't know how how we expect it to work out. Like if you look at the best way to predict the future is look at the past, and everything. All these crises are getting worse. And you know, people say, well, you know, more money. Well, we know that's not going to solve the problem. People, you know, people say, well, let people be able to move more easily, right? So let's let doctors and everybody be able to move around more easily. Well, we already know what happens when we do that. We have travel nurses. Well, guess what's coming when they make it easier for doctors to move around? Well, you'll have travel doctors that will cost four times as much like the travel nurses do. Somehow the individuals that are retiring at 53 or 55 and leaving for the, for the you know, we've got this, you know, these are really big challenges, but but all this there's like we have anchors that are holding us back. For example, collective agreements. Well, they're sacred. They're sacred. You know, they're sacred. They, they can't be touched. Uh, pensions. The fact that people can retire when they punch for 30 years. Well, next year is my 30th year of serving the kids of Newfoundland and Labrador, and I figure probably another 20 years I'll be able to look at retiring. I talked to public servants who didn't retire till they were in their like 60s and 70s because they couldn't afford to retire, but somehow. Somehow we had to figure out a way to get people to care enough to be courageous, do the difficult things, to say the difficult things, and, and to stop blaming you know, the straw people, wherever they are, whether it's a politician or it's a billionaire or, or it's the, you know, the, the people that make our food. Like, I, I don't know how to do that. I, like, I, no, no easy solutions, but it, it's not going to be solved by a messiah that comes down from the heavens. And it's not going to be solved by political party. It's going to be solved by individuals, families, community leaders, businesses, business leaders, and politicians for sure. Um, but, you know, one call to action I would like everybody to do, this body safety program, which is ridiculous. I just talked to a teacher. She brought it up. I mean, every teacher we talk to says, yeah, there's nothing in the schools, and we need to have it. So, she, you know, I say, I say to people, we've now added Terry Hall, who is the head of the NLESD. We've reached out to him. He's not responding to us. Because um, I guess he's hiding behind the minister. Now we have another minister, of course, which further compromises this process. But I say to everybody, go to go to bodysafetynl.com. Terry Hall's email address there. You can send a form letter to him. Appreciate everybody who's sent letters in the past. But, you know, and it's easy. You don't even need to look it up. You don't have to. It's Terry Hall at nlasd.ca. Let's flood his inbox with emails. Let's see if we can get him to step up and be courageous. Tony Stack, when he left, he had made a commitment to do this. And in his exit interview, he said that Newfoundlanders Labradorians now rank at the bottom of critical thinking and problem solving. Well, that's amazing when you think about how I would have said the stereotypical Newfoundland Labrador, that was our superpower, was critical thinking and problem solving. And we're losing it. And I just call everybody to take action 
and let's let's try and try and save this beautiful province. Appreciate the time, Tom. Thanks for the call. Take care. Take care. All right, bye bye. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Where am I going here, David? Three, uh, two. Okay, two. It is uh, Ryan. You're on the air. Hi, uh, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. I'm a uh, I'm an inshore fisherman, as uh, most of you there already know from Pitty Harbor, and I'm also a uh, I'm also a leader in uh, in our oil and gas world class operation here on the offshore of uh, of the province. And Patty, I'm first thing I'm going to start off by saying is uh, every time I'm about to uh, call your show, I do my homework. I make a few keynotes there just to uh, to hit the topics. But when I'm in queue, what I uh, what really intrigues me is I just heard your last caller mention. How they think in Newfoundlanders we rank least in the uh, we rank least in the criti- critical thinking aspect, aspect and uh, problem solving skills. I think that uh, I think that they look in the wrong place when they're judging that. If they wanted to uh, if they wanted to listen to your show here and spend three hours in the morning, I think they would see that we're full of critical thinkers and problem solvers because everyone that call your show are, are the exact epitome of the definition of critical thinkers and problem solvers. It's just that the people that are uh, the people that are looking at us from the outside, they make comedy skits like uh, like this hour has 22 minutes. For the, they make comedy skits of the Atlantic provinces. Like uh, one well-known one is uh, P-E-I-E-I-E-I, where they laugh at us and we're the joke of the nation for uh, promoting promoting the uh, or basically enforcing E-I down our throats. So it's not that's not a reflection of uh, who we are. That's a reflection of our leadership, basically. When uh, when a true leader. When you when when you have successes, a true leader a true leader gives the credit to his team. But when you have failures, a true leader a, a true leader takes it on their shoulders and ex- accepts responsibility. Basically, that's uh, that's what I'll say on that, Patty. But the reason I'm calling your show today is because just like Sean McCann there, I just listened to him there while I was waiting waiting in the queue. I guess uh, I could say we are long lost relatives because myself and Sean and every other fisherman and every other hard-working person in the uh, in the province we are the exact same people and the exact same exact same visions we we adapt with the times as they change but we have leadership that haven't produced no results and uh, it seems like no they're not willing they're not willing to adapt they're still stuck in 1993 they they're basically they're ruining sean's band their chances ever coming together and they're ruining our chances of a fishery and they're ruining the logs of every hard-working, uh, hard-working and critical thinker that we have in the province, because we have a couple of leaders that's uh, that's representing us that totally lack leadership skills. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you're right. A real top quality leader will accept responsibility under the guise of the buck stops here kind of stuff. I think that gets a lot of support, you know, especially if they don't couch it with, well, I did not know that X or Y or Z was happening, but now that it has, I'll take responsibility, which sort of, you know, fragments this uh, taking ownership type of stuff. But I think you're right, ultimately, with that comment, yeah. You're exactly right, Patty. And if a uh, if a leader don't know X, Y, and Z is happening, that is another reflection of their leadership skills because they're the ones getting paid to know that. They're the ones to mo- they're the ones supposed to uh, supposed to be monitoring that. But anyway, rather than getting too uh, too deep into the weeds of it, I guess the way most uh, the way most of my leaders that work for me in the offshore, the way they manage their biz, the way they manage their business is they put their uh, they put their trust in the people around them to make uh, to pay to make proper proper decisions and when they don't when they when they can't make those decisions 
they take that as a reflection of themselves, so they train and mentor them until they can. And then we all build each other up together. You don't see none of my crew from from the offshore industry going around St. John's year after year with picket signs, but you will see my whole crew ever since 19, uh, John the Fishery in 1999, you will see those guys going around, and girls, going around with picket signs in their hands year after year. That's because in my offshore industry, we have critical tank we have critical tankers as leaders and we are we are a we are a performance driven industry where we are held accountable for our, for our decisions so when you look at a world class industry that's held accountable for decisions and you compare it to an inshore fishery that you have leadership that are not well it's a it's a proven difference if uh, we 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 are world class we compete with norway and all and guys who who are out ahead in front of the whole world, and we're we're right there up, right there on top of them. Well, and then when you compare it, quite. go ahead. Sorry, Patty. No, go ahead. not really, because I mean, you know, it depends on what part of the world, what type of regulations, oversight. You know, people might uh, say, uh, "How about West Africa or places which are seeing a real boom, but maybe not the same approach we take?" Ryan, I'm going to try to squeeze on one more, unless you have something very quickly that would like to well, add. Yeah, I do. I do have one thing, real, a couple, two, two things. Very quickly, one more. thing. Real, yeah, real, in, real innovators, real, in, real innovators. They develop ideas. So right now, my daughter and my wife come up with an idea where we're gonna we're gonna sell ten or uh, one third of our proceeds of our commercial crab this year, and the profits of one third of it is gonna go to charity. And just back to Africa, I worked in Africa and I worked in those third world countries, and I showed empathy, respect, and dignity, and we were world class in those countries as well. So as long as you put those three words back into back into the industry, we could turn this fishery around too. Possibly. I was trying to squeeze in line number two, but I think David's speaking with her now, so I probably won't get a chance today. Did you want to polish off I'm, your thoughts for another 30 yes. seconds? I'm tied to the war fund trip limits, buddy. i got the rest of the day. We can talk if you like. So, uh, yeah, so so basically, back back to some of Sean's points there. Uh, life, life, basically, when you you got to look at the positives to, to build yourself up, to build success. Life is probably 10% of what's thrown at us, and it's 90% of how we react to it. Fair enough. Uh, some of those summaries may seem cliche, but cliches are that for a reason because they're accurate. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Ryan. When are you going to be able to go back out, and when are the processors going to be willing to buy your crab? Well, basically, Patty, in my, my situation here, as uh, a lot of people look at the negative side of things, I, I consider myself a realist. So right now, our family just bought a new boat that's capable of traveling in Nova Scotia. So basically, the ball is in my court now when I want to go to get the 9,000 pound of crab I got left in the water. Because if my processor don't buy it, I'm, I'm going to go on a camping trip to Nova Scotia, and I'm going to land it there. And in, while, I'm, while I do it, I'm still going to pay my middleman processing company what they would have paid to offload my crab and truck it to one of these major major processing plants in the in the province. Centra- <clears throat> Excuse me, Patty. The centralized processing plants, because we have two processing plants in our community that ain't allowed to process crab. So my suggestion will be, and a capitalistic approach, will be to, to allow those processing plants, the Bitty Arbor Co-op and Perilous Fish, give them processing licenses, and rather than reactive decision-making year after year and promoting unemployment, forcing unemployment down us, make it a prosperous industry, a prosperous community. We have one person left under 40 that can hold license, and we have nobody in our plants besides a couple of guys 
in the back of trucks trucking our crab out. So if we allow I'll them to capitalize under on our on our product, all right. We capitalize, they capitalize, and the consumer capitalizes, and we turn our community into a prosperous inshore fishing community rather than one that's on a path destined for failure, like the rest of rural Newfoundland, over reactive decision making and okay. not not being held accountable. Got to jump in there and call it a day, Ryan. We just cleared twelve o'clock. Thanks for this. Sounds good, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.